It's time for Twit This Week in Tech. We have two of my favorite people on, two geniuses, Corey Doctorow and Alex Kantrowitz. Pro Big Tech against Big Tech. It's going to be a great conversation. We'll talk about Google killing yet another service. Mark Zuckerberg fighting in the octagon. Elon Musk's robot. <laughs> and the plan, Peter Thiel's plan, to buy into Britain's National Health Service. That and a whole lot more coming up. Plus the big scam in podcast advertising. It's ahead on Twit. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twit. This Week in Tech. Episode 895. Recorded Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. Eastern Blocks. This episode of This Week in Tech is brought to you by Nureva. Tired of the complexity and cost of traditional pro-AV solutions for large spaces? Nureva has simplified everything about meetings and classroom audio. You get great audio in plug-and-play systems that are easy to install and manage and cost a fraction of in-ceiling systems. Visit Nureva.com slash twit. And by 8Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. And the pod is the ultimate sleep machine. Go to 8sleep.com slash twit to check out the pod. And save $150 at checkout. 8Sleep currently ships within the U.S., Canada, the U.K., select countries in the EU and Australia. And by Podium. Join more than 100,000 businesses that already use Podium to streamline their customer interactions. See how Podium can grow your business. Watch a demo today at podium.com slash twit. And by Policy Genius. Making it easy to compare your options from top companies, Policy Genius can help you make sure you're not paying a cent more than you have to for the coverage you need. Head to policygenius.com slash twit to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's time for Twit This Week in Tech, the show we cover the week's tech news. We have such a good panel today. I have limited it to just two people. Alex Kantrowitz is here from the Big Tech Substack newsletter and the Big Technology Podcast. Hello, Alex. Good to see you. Hey, Leo. Great to see you. Are you plugging the Vancouver hockey team? This is the Grizzlies. So this is throwback. So for listeners, I'm wearing this throwback Vancouver Grizzlies uh, sweatshirt. It's pretty cool. It's by Mitchell and Ness, which is, I think, my favorite clothing brand. Nice. And I'm not a fashion guy, but I did see that the Grizzlies wore the throwback jerseys. Memphis Grizzlies. <laughs> Go Grizzlies. And are I you, said, are you from Canada? I got to get that gear. No, the closest I've been to Canada is uh, Washington State. And oh, the closest I've been to Vancouver is Washington State uh, and on the West Coast. Um, I do have some family in in uh, Toronto. Shout out Toronto. Um, but uh, But no, I'm a New Yorker. Let's go. Let's go Mets. So there's nothing weirder than a New Yorker wearing a Vancouver Grizzlies shirt, but you know, we'll go. Uh, Leo, with it. <laughs> I have one promise to make to you today. What's and that? that is that I'm here to bring the weird. Let's go. It's You're time gonna... for <laughs> also here. I'm thrilled to have him. Corey Doctorow, you know, Corey very well. I'm sure uh, he's got a new book. In fact, uh, we did a triangulation, uh, Corey uh, and uh, Rebecca Giblin, his uh, co-author and I on Thursday, you might want to check that out on the Twit triangulation feed or the Twit event feed. Really fascinating conversation great to see you Corey. you are a canadian authentic 
I, I, we, we walk among you. We are like serial killers. We look just like everyone else. <laughs> he seems so normal. How did yeah. we? How could we have known? Although I became an American citizen about ten weeks ago. I know. I heard. I remember that. Congratulations. You. Are you having regrets yet? Uh, no, uh, opposite actually. Like it, the worse things get, the more glad I am that I have more rights oh. that I would otherwise not be entitled to as someone who is merely a permanent resident. Now, your wife is American, yes? No, she's British. She's British. But she's also American now. So she she is a Anglo-American. My daughter and I are Anglo-Canadian Americans. But I'm, through my father, entitled to Polish, Azerbaijani, Belarusian, Russian citizenship. Great. So I'm, I'm, I might get some of those. <laughs> Most of them are countries I don't intend to ever visit. I'm not sure I'd want to go. But... But, uh, you know, yeah. every now and again, you want to go someplace that was like a non-allied nation during the Cold War, and you got the right passport for it. Yeah. It's nice to have, like, you know, uh, you know James Bond, a whole stack of passports, you know, you can go to in your in your go bag, just in that's case. That's right. Just in case. That's, that's what I'm down for. <laughs> I mean, even if it takes the rest of my life to get them. And hi- hypothetically, also, I could get an Israeli passport. So, like, eight in total. Wow. And I could... I just like to have a big stack with a rubber band around it. Exactly. Have it in the safe with $10,000 in cash and then just leave it open every once in a while in case anybody is wandering by, maybe a a sidearm, and uh, you're set. You're ready to go. Someone in the IRC, San Mateo, says Putin might conscript me, although I'm a 51-year-old man with two artificial hips and cataracts. I Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> You're in court. That's really scraping the bottom of the barrel. He'll take you. He'll take you. How's your uh, hips, by the way? Oh, uh, they're getting better. Yeah. Good. Little by little. Last time you were on, you uh, showed us your, uh, your uh, 3D model of your hip bone. Yeah. Now, I I, le- I should have brought them in. I've, I I made a brass uh, cane topper yes. uh, cast from my hip bone. Yes. And then the bone itself is in a shadow box. Uh, but they're all they're both out <laughs> in our bar in the backyard. Uh, rightly so. I, I think we talk with it. Leave them there. That's good. <laughs> oh, Google, Google, Google. They're at it again. Uh, Stadia, three years old. Google has announced they are shutting it down. They're streaming gaming service i guess really the only question is uh whoever thought stadia would survive the good news is they are giving you your money back um why did google alex even think it could get into gaming what was the what was the process there well i think that what we're seeing now is this demarcation between old google and new google yeah and old google said let's experiment with everything we can throw money behind it because why not Right, And that's how you end up having a thing like Stadia get funded in the way that it got funded and become a big prog of uh, Google's strategic vision is because they were going to make every experimental project part of that vision. And eventually some of it would stick. And that would be the, uh, you know, a potential next big reinvention for Google. Did Google and- get, uh, you know, financial uh, responsibility? I mean, did they start getting, did they grow up or? Well, that's what I think. That's exactly what I think we're seeing right now. And this, the canceling of Stadia is like maybe just the beginning, right? We had Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google and Alphabet at Code a few weeks ago saying Google needed to get 20% more That's efficient. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that like, rather than look at this as like, you know, Google's bet on gaming, I think we can really see this as a signal for where this company is going and maybe where all of big tech is going, which is that those experimental projects that used to get the money because, again, why not? They're not going to get the money anymore. And I think this is going to do two things. One, it's going to add bring needed focus to a lot of these companies. 
but two is it's going to open the door for companies who would have otherwise been in these experimental areas and gotten wiped out by big tech to start competing with big tech in a way that they haven't been before. So I think this is, again, it's just a very dynamic, interesting time for big tech. And Stadia is one example um, of what we're seeing in terms of the change that's just going to accelerate, I think, over the next few months. Do you think, Corey, it's maybe also trepidation about government regulation that maybe Google's saying we should pull some of the tentacles back in? I mean, I I, I don't think that... Um so I think that that merger scrutiny is a lot easier to imagine the state imposing than um, merger review and unwinding. Uh, unwinding mergers is really hard. It's very expensive and it takes a long time. I think it's probably a necessary corrective. Uh, and I, I do have uh, one weird trick that we can talk about later for how I think we could do a lot of it very quickly. But um, merger scrutiny is far more likely. And since they didn't buy Stadia, there, there. Uh, I don't think they would be worried about that. But I did want to say that, you know, it's underappreciated the extent to which Google bought its way to glory instead of inventing its way to glory. You know, the, the, this is a company that's had one and a half internal successes. They made a great search engine and a pretty good Hotmail clone. All of the other things that they built internally crashed and burned. And all of the successes that they have are things they bought from someone else. And this is just the latest example, right? Google Video stank. YouTube succeeded google couldn't build a mobile os but android came along and people will say you know that um google photos is an internal success and it's true but it's an internal success because it comes bundled on android which google bought from someone else and they bought picasa which is a lot of the back end yeah. as well i'm yeah, looking at the stuff you're... google's purchase starting in 2001 when they bought deja news i forgot about that yeah, uh, deja news. yeah remember deja and blogger of course was their yeah. third Big acquisition. They bought AdSense. They didn't make that up. They yeah, their whole ad tech stack, their server management, their mobile platform, their video platform, uh, you, you know, customer service, HR software, like all of it, their docs platform, all came from other companies. Yeah. Calendar. What about Chrome? I mean, what about the browser? Uh, Chrome, you're right. Chrome is Chrome is a browser they did build internally. You're right. That's an omission. Thank yeah. you. And the person well, I take that, it back. that led that project is, of course, the CEO today. Sundar was right. in charge. Two and a half successful products. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but still, no, I mean, an increase and, of and I, don't mean to be, so. I, I don't mean to be flip here, right? I, it's, but it's not. It's also true of lots of other companies that they're buying their way to glory. Uh, and the reason I bring that up, because you asked me about antitrust, is that historically companies were prohibited from both merging with major competitors and also buying nascent competitors that they might neutralize on their way to becoming a threat. Uh, and, you know, the, the modern antitrust that was practiced for the 40 years of kind of Reaganomics that seems to be coming to a close was extraordinarily tolerant of acquisitions as a growth strategy. But uh, as I say, I think that's coming to a close. In the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority is challenging, you know, even small acquisitions like Facebook buying uh, Jiffy, which I refuse to call Giffy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, I, I, I think you're going to see more of this. And, and I think it's a necessary corrective. I mean, the extent to which VCs have become effectively like corporate recruiters who basically say, all right, we're going we're gonna to put a little money into a, a startup whose purpose is to basically produce a, a postgraduate portfolio piece that we're going to pretend as a product just to prove that they can work together as a team. And then a tech company will buy them, throw away the product and just put them to work. And the VC's equity will just be like a finder's fee. It's a, it's a grotesque and wasteful way to conduct business, to say nothing of to get, you know, innovative products into the market. 
I'm just looking Victoria, at the, is, the yeah. list of uh, acquisitions Google has made. The oh, many great going. companies that I've loved when they were around that have yeah. basically disappeared. Picasso is a good example. Jaiku is a good example. Uh, you, you know, you can go on and on and on. They've been they've basically been a graveyard feed burner. Uh, Grand Central, which became—I mean, uh, Feedburner's still in there. Yeah, and so uh, is so is uh, Google Voice uh, as Grand Central. Yeah. Although, part of the problem with Google killing stuff is it it makes people nervous about adopting Google services because mm -hmm. there's always this risk that Google's going to lose interest. So, Alex, you're saying this is kind of a salubrious adjustment of their of their financial you know financial maturity, but it's also risky, isn't it? I do think it's risky. Yeah, I think this is the, I, I made this point um, in big technology a couple of weeks ago, talking about how, you know, you might end up seeing stuff that Wall Street likes a lot in the short term. Um, things like greater profitability. Um, they might even make some offensive moves to try to take out some competitors. But in the long term, um, I think focusing on profitability, especially when it comes to big tech companies that are 10, 20, 30, 40 years old, uh, leaves them vulnerable to outside challenges in a way that they weren't before. Google is at least trying to make uh, people whole who bought into Stadia. They're going to refund your fancy uh, controller and any games you bought, which is actually a big deal because you had to buy the games to play them on Stadia. But they are not going to refund your subscription fees. And there are some people who are a little miffed about Google pulling the plug, like uh, a YouTuber named It's Color TV who says he had devoted... 5,907 hours to building up a character in Red Dead Redemption 2, a character which will be lost, that's 246 days, lost in January when Google pulls the plug because there's currently no way to transfer that character yeah. uh, to your yeah. own copy of Red Dead okay. Redemption. I'm sorry about, about it. Like For folks who think that, they, that it's a good idea to invest in products on other people's platforms without thinking that there's a risk that the platform might pull the rug, it's, a, it's absurd at this point. You know, every single thing that people build on one of these big tech platforms, you have to understand that if, if you know, for some reason they decide that, you know, they don't want to support it anymore, it's done. And this yeah, but, but you don't have a, do you have a choice is the problem. Right. I mean, where do you go if you're not going to build on at this point? You can't build on any you're going to it's YouTube or TikTok. My son is two two point one million followers on TikTok is starting to build a career as a TikTok uh, creator. But it's it's not like you could do that, you know, on your own blog anymore. Right. Yeah, of course. It's different. And even By if the you way, do. Congratulations to him. Yeah, he's doing but I also great. Think that you do it. You but do it, it with the understanding that, that it might just be a moment in time. And I think we all have to be okay with that when we're on these other platforms yeah. because there's no other way around it. They are also, well, by the way, I'd say TikTok is give, like providing that opportunity for your son to, you know, create that business. It's a great opportunity. Without it, it wouldn't be there. Yeah. So it, it goes both ways. But all this stuff really needs to be viewed as, you know, potentially temporary situations because that could always flip over time. And often it does. I, I agree with your cautionary note there. I, I do think that, when we say there's no other way, you're right that there is no other way right now, but it's not like there's no conceivable other way, right? Like when RSS was designed uh, in, at its core, 
was this idea of blocking lock-in and orphaning and so on. Yep. So, you know, there's a there's an XML directive you can put with uh, RSS that says this feed is permanently moved to a different address. So if you and your hosting company part ways, you just send that directive out. The next time a podcatcher pulls down that XML file, it goes, oh, I'm just going to relocate my, my uh, bookmark for this to a different server. And you can just take your audience with you. I understand why YouTube hasn't built that. But um, I I don't understand why we should why we shouldn't want them to build it right it, you know like if we're going to get a better deal for creators from YouTube one of the ways that we'll do that is by YouTube having a legitimate fear that if they give creators a bad deal that those creators will go elsewhere it's a separate issue to the one about um about this Red Dead Redemption character but again at least within a single game it's easy to see how those um, stats could be moved over. I mean, this is just a small database entry, but I think that um, firms don't like doing this because they like their app store to be like a sole portal into payments and other sources of value. And if they do create that interoperability, that they, there is that possibility that customers will jump ship, right? If they're taking a 30% rake or a 15% rake or whatever it is, uh, Stadia was taking out of Red Dead Redemption's publishers, the the inability to port a character is a feature and not a bug. It's not a technical challenge. Uh, you know, the, the they YouTube could disclose to Red Dead Red Dead Redemption all of that material and and give the publishers the the technical means to move that character it's over. A small file. That's yeah, all. but yeah, they they just choose that, not to. Right. Don't you think that if you spend the money creating this stuff, you should be able to make the rules? Let me give an example, like brick and mortar store, right? If you have a restaurant um, and you 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 shouldn't just make a, you'd be required to uh, store all the person's food preferences so that they can, you know, then go to another restaurant and basically mimic exactly what you've been giving them without having that restaurant having to work for it. That should be something that starts from the ground up. So, I, I, just, I mean, but the user I should be I, I, able I don't to. Fully see. Yeah, the, I mean, honestly, I know what my preferences are, so I can bring right. them with me. Yeah, but if the if somehow the restaurant was able to lock up my preferences, that wouldn't be a good right. situation, would it? I don't. Of think course, so. yeah. Listen, I think that like if you spend the effort, you run the business, you're spending the time. Yeah, I'll never to, go to that restaurant then if they're going to steal my preferences and keep them well, to themselves. Okay. I mean, look, let's say you'll not find you go to, to let's say you go to pizza restaurant number one, right? Mm-hmm. And you have like a, you're, you know, you have. And they a, name usual, a pie right? for me, the Leo yeah. pie, which has no, got saying, grapes, all, tomatoes, yeah. pea pepperoni, right. and that's all. And then I, I can't take that to another restaurant because it's well, now you owned. You, no, by that Papa other restaurant John's. can't. The other, the other restaurant should be able to make that, but there shouldn't be a requirement to go to this restaurant and sure. say, "Please send the recipe." Download Leo's Leo recipe, special, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then give it to the competitor. That competitor should have to figure out on their own. But, but you know, I, I, RSS is a good example because I mean, this whole network is dependent on RSS. That's what how podcasting works. But didn't the platforms come along and say, "Yeah, we're going to kill RSS," creating some sort of spurious uh, uh, allegation that RSS isn't working or it's not right or it's not good. They did the same thing with XMPP. They don't want interoperability, so they actively kill it, don't they? And uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying necessarily that I want YouTube to be forced to do this, but in the absence of meaningful competition, YouTube is neither being disciplined by firms nor by regulators. And that means that they can their corporate preferences carry an enormous amount of weight and that furthermore, 
the lack of competition, which arises uh, in part out of this um, anti-competitive vertical integration that I was just talking about, where, where Google just buys the companies that might later compete with it, means that it has enormous power over policy. So while I, I support absolutely uh, YouTube's fair use claims. I was a, a staunch supporter of YouTube when Viacom was suing them for a billion dollars. I think that uh, it, it's not YouTube's job to make sure Viacom's business model is intact uh, or to respect their business model. I think what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And if you were to try and make a tool that allowed a YouTube uh, broadcaster to take their audience with them to a rival platform, which is, I think, analogizes to the kinds of things that people did, that YouTube did when they made a tool that allowed people to take the video they liked and put it on YouTube and, and only have to respond to takedown and so on. YouTube would reduce you to like radioactive rubble. They'd, they'd say you violated their terms of service. They'd say you violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. They'd say you violated the DMCA. Uh, and, and they would, they would, um, put you out of business for doing unto them what they did unto others. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that. Um, they should face the same competitive pressure that gave rise to something as innovative as, and great as YouTube so that the next innovative great thing can come along. That seems fair. Uh, you wouldn't be against that, right, Alex? I mean, you don't have yeah, to. Well, I mean, isn't there ahead. a bill in the, the Senate to promote interoperability? Is that Yeah, sufficient? that's the Access Act. It, yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't touch this, but it's... Uh, the Access Act is about exposing APIs for social media and a few other kinds of platforms, app stores as well. Uh, I, I, and then the EU, there's the Digital Markets Act. They're, they embody the, the punchline of that Irish joke, uh, if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. Right? Like you, have, <laughs> you, 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 have this, you, know, you have this situation where these firms are very dominant uh, and where they do act as gatekeepers, right? Where they're like, they're, um, Matt, well, Matt, Matt Mullenweg's post about why Tumblr doesn't have porn anymore and why it never will was pretty instructive here. It was like, you know, we, we submit updates to Apple three times a month. And at any time, they might just arbitrarily decide that the filters we had last month are no longer good enough. And then we just go out of business. And he's like, I don't know how, how Twitter gets away with it. I don't know how Reddit gets away with it, but we don't and we couldn't. Apple has, has chosen to make exceptions for some firms and not others. We only have 100 million users instead of, uh, you know, however, or we only have a million, 10 million users instead of 100 million users. So maybe that's why. Uh, but it, it just, it just puts Apple in the position of picking winners and losers in the marketplace. And I don't think the answer is to say, Apple, you must carry all apps, no matter whether you feel they're good or bad. But I think that its customers should be allowed to choose a different app store, right? It is after all their phone. It belongs to them. You know, as you, as you say, if, if you add the value to it, e.g. by opening your wallet and buying it, then it should be yours to use as you feel like. And, uh, uh you know, th the fact that Apple doesn't, have to face meaningful competition from other app stores uh, for the hardware it's sold means that it can act in this very high-handed and opaque way. And it, it does just, you know, it gets to structure the entire mobile market, kind of, or, or half of it, the other half being structured by Google, but no one elected them. And, you know, mostly what they use to, to uh, attain that structuring is not technology, but the law. It's the fact that if you were to try to unlock an Apple phone and, you know, sell a dongle that jailbroke your phone and let you choose another app store, Apple would sue you. So they're happy to have the state regulators step in and prevent people from offering, you know, more choice to people who own devices, who want to use their property in different ways. But they abhor regulation when someone steps in and tells them how to use their property 
I would actually prefer to just withdraw the legal protections from Apple, not um, impose new obligations on them. You say the Access Act should be modified to allow a right of private lawsuit. Yeah. Which is what Texas has done with their gun uh, laws and their abortion laws. Actually, no, I California mean, did it with the gun laws. Texas yeah, did with it with the gun it. laws. Yeah. It's pretty, that's, that's slightly different because it's disinterested third parties. No, this is just like, you know, it, it, there are some statutes that only a, a, a public prosecutor can invoke and some that the public can invoke. So imagine if you went to the muffler shop and they wrecked your car. And the only way you could sue them is if you could get your local attorney general to sue them. Right. That's what it's like when there's no private right of action. So private right of action is if you individually were harmed by someone who violated a statute, you can hire a lawyer to sue them. Statutes that don't have a private right of action require a public prosecutor to bring action. And sometimes that's appropriate. But I think like with both privacy and with the Access Act, uh, a, a private right of action makes sense. Yeah. I think the fear is that it would jam the court's with a, a bunch of frivolous action as well. Although, you know, I, I don't see that in Texas. I don't see it in California. So maybe. And you can, you can just, um, you can have a, something like a slap act where right. you can have early motions to dismiss. Right. You can also have fee recovery, which dis, which discourages that kind of thing. If you, if it's loser pays, right. Uh, people aren't going to bring spurious lawsuits because the other side will be like, great, I'm just going to hire a lawyer on contingency to rack up giant billings for your frivolous lawsuit. And at the end, I'll take it out of your hide. It's kind of telling that we'd have to rewrite our tort system in order for this to work. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's mostly a legal protection and not a technical one. Right. It's the, right. As a technical matter, jailbreaking has been of varying degrees of difficulty at different times in, in Apple's devices history. But um, as a legal matter, the the difficulty has stayed constant. Uh, you know, you have you have like Checkmate, which is a um, a jailbreak against all of the secure enclaves for eight years worth of iPhone mo- models that cannot be remediated because the secure enclave is not field updatable. Because that's the whole point. If you can modify the secure enclave, then it's not secure. Uh, and so, you know, hypothetically, someone could develop a, a jailbreak based third party app store that. Um, leverage checkmate for anyone who bought an iPhone over the first eight years of its existence or, uh, you know, year four through 12 of its existence. Uh, but they can't because Apple would come after you under the DMCA. Is, is that, so Matt Mullenweg, uh, in fact, I wish I'd asked him this because he was on our show a couple of weeks ago uh, about the porn thing. There was a kind of a, a movement on Tumblr, people saying, oh, Tumblr's bringing porn back. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And Matt had to write a blog post saying, no, no, it's not coming back. It's never coming back is it fair for apple uh, for matt to blame apple for this alex i mean i look I, i'm not familiar with the with the controversy here i know that tumblr used to be filled with porn i guess yeah it's not. verizon um, killed it uh right. matt said basically that's the old tumblr back in 2006 you could do that but nowadays because apple would just knock us out of the app store uh and that's 40 percent of our signups and 85 percent of our page views from mobile uh, we'd be out of business. Um, yeah, I think but that, it, look, at a certain point, you got to let the companies that are running these products make their own decisions. Apple has a reason for not wanting to have... Yeah, but his uh, point is they let the Twitter and Reddit both mm-hmm. have considerable amount of adult content. Well, I do think that they were going to want to be consistent in the application yeah. of the yeah. rules. that they're, He they're says they're too big for Apple to block. So they decided to make an example out of Tumblr. If that's the case, which I think is right, I mean, I think Matt knows better than anybody, and I like Matt, and I trust him. Uh, that's a really good example of Apple misusing its market power. 
Well, you know, I think the one way that Apple could really do a better job is make sure that it gets some of the scams out of the App Store. You know, I, I don't know if, you know, Apple's making the best use of its time being like the morality police on apps like Tumblr. And if it's going to be better, be consistent. But there's so many scam apps in the App Store. These are well documented. You know, they exist in the U.S. and outside, largely outside. And, uh, you know, if the company is trying to make us think that that 30 percent fee is worth it, um, you know, work on getting those, those scams out of the app store first. And then we can, you know, go the level down and talk about, you know, decency on on the apps. Yeah. And thanks to Costa Alferio, uh, who exposes this makes he's made this his job ever since Apple uh, uh, blocked his uh, very useful uh, tool for writing uh, text on an Apple watch allowing others through he's made it his life work <laughs> to, to find scams on the app store apparently he had a deal with he made a deal with apple over uh over his uh, uh apps being blocked so he's had to stop talking about that but well that's terrible yeah uh, by the way can, can i ask you a question so i think that there's been a very interesting arc to these conversations that we've had about big tech the first one was a recognition recognition of the fact that these apps have and, and companies have just become too big and it all happened so fast right facebook went from like 500 million users to a billion to a couple billion users like in a blink of an eye amazon went from you know being a percentage of of online retail to being online retail effectively in a moment's notice apple from a one trillion or you know a couple hundred billion dollar company to a three trillion dollar company in a moment's notice so then everyone's like okay these companies are the biggest companies in the world and they are squeezing out competition, which is definitely true. We need to regulate them. And, and then we had this flood of ideas and, and bills that have come and tried to rein them in. I, I just wonder if they're, if they're going too far. Some of them seem like they make a lot of sense to me, right? Like the idea that a platform cannot privilege its own products by using the data that it gets from companies that have to go through them. That makes sense. But the whole idea of cutting off acquisitions, okay, most M&A fails. So- the idea that M&A is the only thing that's made these companies successful doesn't doesn't really make sense to me. Um, the idea of data portability, like I, I understand the, the tenets of data portability, but people are on Facebook, people are on Twitter for the network. It's not like you can just take your data and go somewhere else and be okay. And all this is happening in the context of a market that's punishing these companies ruthlessly. I mean, Facebook's down 57% this year in the stock market and getting kneecapped by TikTok. So I would just wonder if... if um, you know, how much, how far, if we've gone too far on, you know, let's regulate these, the fair competition back in the market without remembering that we have a market economy and letting the market do its work as it seems to be doing this year. I mean, I, I agree. I think that it's important to distinguish between the dynamics that drive growth and the dynamics that maintain growth. So growth, I think, is driven, uh, it's well understood by network effects. You know, you joined Facebook because you wanted to talk to the people who were there. They joined Facebook because they wanted to talk to you. Um, you made an app for the App Store because you wanted to sell it to Apple customers. Apple customers bought iPhones because they wanted to use your app. And so there's this virtuous cycle that, that drives growth. But intrinsically, technology has really low switching costs because... Computers are universal. The only computer we know how to make is the computer that can run all the software we know how to write. It's the, you know, Turing machine, the, the von Neumann machine. And so 
historically, you know, when you had firms that had choke points in the market the way Microsoft did in the early 2000s, when it wouldn't maintain uh, the Mac office product and it became harder and harder for CIOs to justify having Macs in the office. I was a CIO back then. We started putting Windows machines on designers' desks so that they could uh, access Word files and Excel files and PowerPoint files without corrupting them. Eventually, we just put bigger graphics cards in them, threw away their Macs and, and bought them Adobe Suite for, for Windows. Um, and the way Apple resolved that was not by um, asking the, the law to regulate Microsoft, nor was it by um, uh, telling people that they like Macs better and so they should just hang in there. They reverse engineered Microsoft's products. They made Pages, uh, Keynote, and Numbers, which are reverse, which reverse engineered the file formats of Excel, PowerPoint, and um, Word. And they made them feature compatible and they kept a team on that so that every time Apple uh, or Microsoft updated their file formats, Apple updated their file formats in parallel so that they could maintain compatibility. That's a thing that has been ended, right? The, the, the mechanisms under which we used to do that have now been made illegal under tortious interference with contract, under non-disclosure and non-compete, under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and so on. We've created this like penumbra of laws that boil down to felony contempt of business model. And what that's done is it's made it possible for firms that have attained dominance through network effects, but would historically have faced uh, the risk of losing that dominance also through network effects, because the corollary of a service that gets more valuable every time joins uh, someone joins is a corollary is a service that gets less valuable every time someone leaves. And so you, you're prone to these like uh, bank runs on your users, as we sort of see happening with Facebook now, where people yeah. are leaving Facebook and advertisers are leaving and then people are leaving and advertisers are leaving. So, um, you know, restoring that interoperability, the right to interoperate, you know, when, when Facebook uh, extended membership to non-EDU addresses, all of the users that had hoped to court were already on MySpace. And rather than telling them, you know, you should pick a day when all of you quit MySpace and come to Facebook, or you should maintain two separate clients, it gave them a bot. And you could load that bot with your login and password for MySpace, and it would go and scrape your waiting messages and put them in your Facebook inbox. And then it would let you reply to them and push them into your MySpace outbox. And, you know, if you tried to do that to Facebook today, or if you tried to reverse engineer Apple's App Store and produce a, a feature-compatible App Store today the way Apple did to Microsoft, they would destroy you. And so you're right. There's a market dynamic that drove this, this growth, but it's not a market dynamic that maintained the growth. The thing that maintained the growth was the capture of regulation to prevent new firms from doing to these firms what they did when they were new firms. Well, I also wonder, um, sorry, Leo, you can tell, you could rein me in, but no, like, no, no, it, this it, is good. This I'm, is the, I'm, I'm, and then I'm going to yeah. bring up, uh, some other congressional right. uh, legislation in a so bit that is probably if, misguided, but go ahead. If this is the case, then how do you explain? And by the way, you know, I just, just for the, I'm trying to learn here. So, how do you explain the notion that that Figma, which effectively does what Adobe does, but does it on the browser, uh, just sold to Adobe for $20 billion in what was absolutely a defensive move because Adobe knew that Figma was going to kick its butt uh, if it let it continue to to grow? Um, and another thing. What, and by what the way, I'm we, surprised, but the consensus yeah. seems to be that that's going to be allowed to go through when, to me, mm -hmm. Corey, this is exactly what you're right. talking about but but figma's ability to succeed is effectively also like pretty impressive right yeah and then there's the other like with with this acquisition adobe is going to become figma effectively um the other thing that i wonder about is what happens when we you know we we, we have these conversations in the context that 
um, you know, nothing's going to change. But what happens when we move platforms and we go to, you know, augmented reality, for instance, like the, the people who are building the operating systems and the hardware for augmented reality right now, you know, we don't, we don't know who's going to win that. And that can, again, just like we move from desktop to mobile and, and, you know, even, you know, uh, downloaded to, to the cloud. So, uh, you know that could also throw things. Well, this is a, isn't this an opportunity with me, with the with the metaverse to say let's do this differently because otherwise you're going to have Apple's metaverse, you're going to have a, a Meta's metaverse, you're going to have maybe Microsoft's metaverse, and you're going to have to choose one or the other. One will win. Don't because forget of Second Life's effects. metaverse. Second Life right. is and still Second out Life. There. And don't don't <laughs> laugh at me, but I I think that um, the metaverse is going to be num- largely enterprise, and there's this. Facebook advertisement that I think I'm going to write about soon. That's all about enterprises use of, of enterprise uses of the metaverse. I'm sh- I, I really believe that the metaverse is going to be enterprise, not social. And if it's me- if well, it's I think Zuck is hoping it yeah. will be more than just enterprise. But well, exactly. But you look at their advertising and they're starting to. Well, they want to, they want it all. And Microsoft clearly but, made but, that decision. They said, yes. "Yeah, the Hololens isn't going to be a consumer product." Exactly. Yeah. So, but let, let's throw another competitor in. And again, this is where I'm hoping no one laughs, but Magic Leap, you know, their second generation device is not bad. Really? And it's geared entirely towards enterprises. So they got a big capital overhang, though. I mean, they have a lot of money they owe to VCs, but when you go through (laughs) the shifts, always openings for competitors. Yeah. Sorry, I I mean, I think that the, like, starting for the end of working backwards, I think. You're, there's a good case to be made that the metaverse, if it if it ever succeeds, won't be for entertainment. If for no other reason than walking around with a brick on your face is an invitation for someone to come up and kick you in the ass. So <laughs> I could see why it would only be used by people who are like sitting comfortably. But in what about office. augmented reality, where you're kind but of I, I, maybe? But I don't want to get too caught up in there. I think that you that the Figma story is really interesting. That that what you see is exactly what I'm describing, where. Mm-hmm. There were elements of, of PSD that were not, uh, which is the Photoshop document for, file format, that were not within this containment vessel. And so Figma was able to make a uh, feature-compatible Photoshop uh, uh, replacement that could read and write your Photoshop files. That was key, right? Because people have a lot invested in their photo- existing Photoshop files. They can't just abandon them. They need to be able to open them and read them. Uh, PSD was reverse engineered, and that's why you can read it in the GIMP, and it's why you can read it in, in other programs and so on. Uh, but, you know, their response was to uh, use their access to the capital markets to snuff out a competitor before it could grow to become a significant and meaningful business all on its own. And so, you know, that we're, we're left with this kind of tautology, which is that if the capital markets will give you enough money to buy a company, you must be uh, the best person to run it. And the way that we can tell you're the best person to run it is you have enough money to buy it. But going back to the Google graveyard, it's pretty clear that, that, you know, there are lots of people who in the capital markets will entrust with the money to buy a nascent competitor who either you know, treat that as a predatory acquisition and snuff it out or who are just not qualified to run it. We were making jokes about the Flickr URL yeah. uh, at the beginning of the show before we went on the air. You know, Flickr was the first service that had mobile photos, right? Years before Instagram, Yahoo bought it and then it became a plaything that was uh, uh, dueled over among the various, you know, venal princelings of the Yahoo empire. And it suffered and fell into like, um, you know, neglect. And, and now it belongs to SmugMug who are gradually digging out more than, you know, decades of, uh, of technology debt. But it was, you know, catastrophic to, the, to be acquired. Yeah. 
But don't you think that if a company gets acquired and then ruined, that opens up the door for another company to come and compete? So for instance, you know, Figma is not the, the Adobe isn't killing the cloud uh, developer design, uh, you know. No, there's a lot of competition. The idea In fact, Pentot, which is an open source yeah, version, just this. raised yeah. like 20 million. Yeah. So exactly. So this is my point. So if Adobe kills Figma, can't Penpot come in and start to compete? Like you, you, of course, there is always the risk when you do uh, M&A that you're going to end up killing innovation. But it's not the end of the story. The story continues. If you mess something up, you can oh, you are going to open it up to competition. And if there is a need in the market for this thing to be built, it will be built. Well, but you get things like... Um so there's a great efflorescence of RSS readers at one point, and Google uh, decided to launch its own reader. And that uh, created what, what venture capitalists call the kill zone around RSS mm -hmm. readers. No one wanted to back them because there was something that was priced at a, you know, it's cross-subsidized from another business at a price that was so low, free, that there was no way to compete with it. And as a consequence, we saw, you know, a decade of neglect, which would have been fine if Google had not then killed reader. But readers never recovered, right? That we, we, we still, yeah. you know, that was the end of RSS effectively. It's, it's now this kind of rump. I was actually just in New York doing a book event that, um, mm -hmm. Nilay Patel, who's the editor in chief of The Verge was, was, uh, um, hosting. And The Verge's new redesign is amazing. And it ha one of the cool things about it is it has a feed of articles that people in The Verge's newsroom think are cool. That's there on the front door of The Verge's new mm -hmm. redesign. Uh, and I said, where can I get an RSS for that? And he was like, we discussed it and thought nobody would want to see oh, an RSS. That's exactly right? what they're but, doing is okay. an RSS feed. Can I, can I tell a funny story, though? So sure. I think that um, I think there's a lot of uh, the idea of a kill zone is, is real and legit. I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. Um, OK, maybe I'm wrong here, but but um, I do think that that we ended the tech world ended up building a replacement for RSS. And that was Twitter. And that the person who built Google Reader ended up going and working with Twitter for a while. And he ended up, unfortunately, built, and he regrets this, building the retweet button, which I think is a source of, and he thinks is a source of, you know, a lot of uh, the negative effects of, of social media. So it's a mixed bag, but it, it also, the market did come in and say, here is another uh, way that you can get you know, your, your stories via a feed. And that was Twitter and Reddit also has. I, I have to, by the way, I think Neil, I's, uh answer to you, uh, Corey is disingenuous. I don't think that has, you know, how much does it cost to do an RSS feed? It's nothing. Mm -hmm. You can well, easily no, do an I, RSS I think he was feed. telling the truth. I think, I think it was just basically like they, they built a lot of features it's, you know, they're not an engineering organization. They had to prioritize. Yeah, but Neil, I knows said. he knows better than that. And then it's their own CMS. Yeah, remember yeah. the the Verge launched to to be a right a reference customer for its own CMS. Right, and so we like I have no idea. Like if we were talking about Drupal, I'd say yeah for sure. You just like you know type in the obscure Drupal switch. command that yeah. says make this thing be an RSS <laughs> right. feed now. Right. Uh, By the way, no, when, when I, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. When Google killed Reader, there were so many clones that came out. The market did try to end up, um, you know, building a replacement. I remember. I, I'll be honest, I wasn't really into RSS readers. And then Google killed Reader and I saw the outpouring of all this anguish and said, oh, I got to try that. And so I downloaded uh, or, or set up an account on something called the old reader. And uh, mm -hmm. um, 
I got that was uh, I I still I use RSS. That. I use Sumi.news. And by the way, I got to point out, mm-hmm. Sumi discovered an RSS feed at the Verge, so it's not that feed on the column there on the right, but it's the all posts feed from the Verge. So all right, they're there still doing RSS. Maybe Neil, I didn't know that. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, no. They've got RSS for the main feed. For the main not for feed, the, not for that side feed. Yeah, for the not yeah. for that sidebar. Yeah. That sidebar is amazing. It's just it's just not convenient for me to keep a browser tab no. open so my screen. Yeah. It's just the, yeah, you uh, know. Uh, but but I I I don't think he was BSing me. I think they just sat down and did a triage, and they were like, nobody uses RSS anymore. Why would we bother? And I, I tried to convince them that RSS is like what the people who read the news to talk about the news and amplify the news That's use. That's all I use, yep. And so, you know, it's like it's a, we're, we're a small but proud people, you know, uh, like and Canadians. And influential, I think influential. Like Canadians. Yeah, like Canadians. <laughs> he seemed like such a nice guy. Who would have known? We're going to take a break. Version of this we're gonna have, the, I have to take the, a break. Hold on, Alex. Okay. I, we, okay. <laughs> otherwise, we'll be here till 8 or 9 or 10. And on your time, that's like 3 in the morning. So <laughs> Alex Kantrowitz is here. The Big Tech, Big Technology Podcast, technology.substack.com. I didn't think of it this way. I didn't intend it this way. But uh, you're not here to defend Big Tech, so don't feel like you have to. <laughs> uh, especially when you've got Cory Doctorow on, the author of the latest choke point capitalism which is absolutely an indictment of not just big tech but big business in general you point out in the book and i think it's by the way a great read highly recommended uh that it's not just tech it's it's publishing it's the record in business it's the live concert business it's every business there is out there in fact we've got a story we'll talk about in a little bit about the podcasting business as well <laughs> is becoming a big tech. Not, I'm not a part of that, unfortunately. Uh, we'll have more in just a bu- bit. Our show today brought to you by Nureva. Nureva's great audio simplifies. Today's IT pros, yeah, kind of in a tough spot. We're, we're Now we're doing this hybrid thing, right? Hybrid working and learning means you have to equip and support more spaces with audio and video conferencing systems because you've got people in the office, you've got people elsewhere. They are all working together. Uh, and you know, your IT department still got to do network security, which is a big issue these days. And of course you're shifting to cloud-based solutions. You got infrastructure issues, product shortages and delays. Add that on top. It's put so much strain on IT's resources, people, time, expertise, and budgets. So here's a product customers will love. that requires minimal effort from IT to deploy and manage at scale with a bonus of requiring zero end user training, it solves a big problem in hybrid work. When it comes to audio conferencing in larger spaces, it's very common to be faced with complex and expensive multi-component systems. you got to bring in people to design them and install them, and then they've got to continue to maintain them and update them and manage them. Nareva is the opposite. Great audio simplifies. It's changed by offering solutions that deliver a high level of simplicity. With Nareva, you, you put in what is looks like a sound bar that gives you full room mic pickup. If you've got a really big room, put in a couple. If you've got a regular size room, put in one. It's a, a sound bar. It's got speakers. It's got microphones. And it uses Nareva's patented uh, microphone mist technology to, in effect, fill the space with microphones. And so easy to install. You could do it. You don't even have to call the IT department. Install a Nareva system in less than 30 minutes. Maybe an hour if you've got a giant room. It's simple. You don't have to configure it. You don't have to tweak it. 
You could, it's so much less expensive and so much easier than those traditional systems that could take your room offline for days. In fact, you could start right now, get an Areva system, install it, be ready for your very next meeting. With Nareva, you can monitor, manage, update, and adjust all the systems. And no matter how many rooms with a powerful cloud-based platform, Nareva console, IT doesn't even have to walk down the hall. Nareva is very scalable. They can bring their simplicity to large organizations too. Nareva systems, N-U-R-E-V-A. They cost a fraction of traditional systems, give you a better result, solves this problem of people in the office and people elsewhere trying to meet and work together. Great audio is so important to that. Check it out. Nareva.com slash twit. N-U-R-E-V-A. Nareva.com slash twit. This is a solution. I don't think people, I mean, I guess if you've been watching our shows, you know about it, but I, I wish it were better known because I still see conference rooms so poorly equipped for audio. This you could do so much better. Nareva.com slash twit. Thank you, Nareva, for supporting This Week in Tech. And uh, thank you, listeners and viewers for supporting us by going to that special address. So they know you saw it here, nareva.com slash twit. Uh, <laughs> did Mark Zuckerberg fight in the UFC show? I don't <laughs> He should have. <laughs> so uh, I don't, Saturday, I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm hoping somebody subscribed to this. <laughs> UFC closed its uh, fight card at the Apex, a facility it owns in Vegas to the press and the public. They wouldn't say initially who did it, but an MMA insider, Ariel Hawani, said a very good close close to the event had told him it's something to do with Mark Zuckerberg. Speculation is Mark's written out the event, maybe just so they could watch. Maybe they could record it for the metaverse. Maybe Mark's going to get into the octagon. I don't know. Wouldn't put it past him. Well, the event already happened. Yeah, so I'm, I'm asking what happened. It was just Mark Zuckerberg. It seemed like it was Mark Zuckerberg and his uh, group and his of pals cronies watching, <laughs> smoking the, those the meats. <laughs> and uh, there's this amazing uh, reaction gif of his wife Priscilla, um, just kind of losing her mind as uh, the fight goes on. But I think the more telling thing is that there were all the UFC fighters um, who were talking about how awful it was that the entire fight could be bought out by one person. And yeah, I think that that that's spot on, and uh, I don't know what Mark well, Zuckerberg. You got enough to money. What what, could, what um, can't you buy? Yeah, of course, but just the a the optics, b the act itself. I find like fairly fairly wrong. And you know, sports is a game for the people. You know, I, I just uh, you know I can't really see any justification for wanting to you know buy you know the entire seating and then leave the public <laughs> out of it. Um, if you want to go watch a fight, go watch a fight. But don't buy it. Has anyone else ever done? I've never seen how much you think it cost to buy out the octagon. (laughs) I don't know. You probably. I guess you probably do it for a million dollars. They make most of. They make most of their money on the um on the the cable fees. Streams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pay per view. Pay per view. I mean, it's like getting Kanye to play or your corporate event or your kids' bat mitzvah or or, you know quinceanera or something. It's just such a it's such an oligarch move. It really is. (laughs) Yeah, it's although you know that I was told. that when the Sultan of Brunei visited Disneyland, he had 13 tour guides and the vice president of operations with a retinue of over 100 people and a flying wedge ahead of them. Uh, and they just went from ride to ride, wedge. clearing parts of Disneyland as they went, which is <laughs> well, hilarious. It's a Those military guides are like 10 grand a day. <laughs> it, you know what? It'd be worth it not to have to get in line. That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Best best deal at Disneyland. You see every once in a while, you see videos on Insta and uh, and TikTok of celebrities getting ushered to the front of the line. You know, you just have to, you know, it's good business. I did like how uh, David Beckham waited the full, uh, what was it, 16 He waited hours for the queen. God bless him. Queen. Yeah. God bless him. 10 hours. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think a number of celebrities actually got in line for that. That's respectful. Right. I like that. That is respectful. Yeah. I, yeah. Will, William Gibson once told me that he feels like he has just the right amount of fame. You know, like. What is the people, right amount of fame? People enjoy his work and they tell him so he can earn a living from it. But he, it's not like he can't eat dinner in a restaurant. Right. Uh, I, I once, uh, Penn Jillette was visiting London and we went out for lunch and like got interrupted like three times. No fun. And Penn is a moderately famous person, but you know, we were eating at a restaurant in London. It's not like Penn and, Penn and Teller are really well known in the UK. And nevertheless, like he couldn't get through a 40 minute meal without being interrupted three times. So, you know, I, I feel like there's probably it's, there's, there's definitely a threshold where the fame gets pretty toxic. Uh, Steve Martin once told me that he knew it was over for him as a real person when he attempted to ride the subway. This was many, many years ago to go see a show in Brooklyn or the Queens or somewhere. And he said, I can never, uh, he said, I'll ne- I can't ride. I can't do it. And I've been to dinner with him. He rents, basically you take over a private room. You don't eat in public. Uh, and you're still harassed by the chef. <laughs> Made her tea. <laughs> how do you uh, talk about this relationship you have with Steve? Oh, Martin? it's well known. I've told it. I've told people about yeah. this before. He he used to listen to my radio show. I don't think he does anymore. Uh, and he mm-hmm. he DM'd me uh, about ten years ago saying, "You don't you don't have to respond to this, but I really like your radio show." And I said, "Yeah, I'm not going to respond, <laughs> Steve Martin. Who cares?" No, I responded and uh, kind of struck up a friendship. Uh, a That's awesome. Friendship. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, it is. It is the only person who's that famous that I've ever spent time with, and it really. It's. It's. He can eat. I bet now he can't. Now that murders in the building's big, I bet you it's actually gotten worse for him again. Uh, mm-hmm. But he very famously stopped doing uh, stadium comedy because he said it's not. It's not a show anymore. It's um. Mm-hmm. It's like the zoo. It's like you know. Uh, uh, he talks about it in Born Standing Up in his, his book. Um, he did. I think he really didn't like that level of fame. But once you get there, you can't. There's no turning back. Here's Mark, by the way, practicing, uh, and apparently uh, this is his sparring partner made his debut in the octagon, and maybe that's why he he bought it out. Yeah, well, he so. could just buy a ticket to it. I'm not <laughs> he I mean, could just, just buy one ticket. I guess. You know. <laughs> but you know, Leo, can I just say? Sorry, go ahead. If you're Mark Zuckerberg, you don't want to be harassed the whole fight. You know, maybe you need that flying wedge of uh, cronies and I think that, yeah, he should just you want to go watch sports, go go suck it up and go watch it in person with the people. I I, I, I mean, it's not like they don't have booths, right? Like they have sky booths, sex, sexy, uh, private booths. Yeah. 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 I mean, champagne solve problem. Right. Like this is the, like a famously solved problem. Right. Of of sports stadiums having VIPs who want to sit in a fancy booth, wear a mustache, uh, a, you know, a hat, just a little disguise. And just you can rent out the private room. Yeah. It's yeah. That, ex- yeah. that exists. I, I, mean, I don't know if it exists at this UFC thing, but. I mean, who says, yes, that's a good idea. To, <laughs> right. Again. Like, you're getting bad advice if you think that's a good idea to do this. Maybe not a good idea for Mark, but remember, this is also the guy who on the 4th of July last year posted a picture of him wearing sunscreen, holding the American flag on a motorized uh, uh, foil. You know, Leo, 
That I, ha- I, I have less of a problem with. You want to go make an idiot out of yourself in the ocean? By all means, people do it every day. I, I remember when he posted this that we had somebody on who said, you know, you don't, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you have a phalanx of PR professionals guiding you, protecting your image at all times. How did that, how did that get exactly, past what I'm them? saying, you know, like, like no one goes, Hey, you might look a little out of touch if you end up, you know, buying out the whole UFC game. And I, I love the fact that all the UFC fighters called, you know, BS on it because deservedly so. Now that, that, okay, no problem with that. If you want to go hold a flag, make an idiot out of yourself in the ocean, like have at it. it there's a big ocean, but there's only limited seats in the UFC. Uh, people were offended so. by this, though. I do remember they were very offended. I'm not sure why. Well, people are offended. Leo, people are offended by everything. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, it's not It's not dignified. It's not dignified. Maybe that's that's all that's wrong with that. Look, is is it is it something I would do? No, no, <laughs> whatever, whatever. He's not taking seats He's a away robot. From at it's a sports okay. event on that on that one. You know what's fun? Uh, we are now thanks to the uh, ongoing action between Twitter and Elon Musk in the Delaware Court of Chancery, uh, privy to the fascinating t- texts going back and forth between Elon and other uh, wealthy individuals. Uh, during his attempt to purchase Twitter. And I like the, I think it was the Atlantic's take on it, that it just shows you the, these guys are as, as stupid <laughs> as you might even imagine. They, Elon Musk's texts shatter the myth of the text tech genius. This is Charlie Wartzel writing, the world's richest man has some embarrassing friends, uh, a number of whom have been on this show, including Jason Calacanis, who uh, volunteered to run Twitter uh, for Elon. And then at at one point uh, said, I, you know, let me ask my, you know, I'll ask around. I remember he did this. He asked around and said, anybody want to invest, you know, put some money into Musk's uh, acquisition. I can, I can help. Uh, Warsaw writes, few in Musk's phone appeared as excitable as the angel investor, Jason Calacanis, who peppered his friend with flattery and random ideas for the service. In the span of 30 minutes, Calacanis suggested a five-point plan for Twitter that would introduce a membership tier, creator revenue splits, algorithmic transparency, and changes to the company's operation. After pledging his loyalty, you have my sword, he texted Musk. Calacanis pushed new ideas for weeks. For weeks. Imagine we asked Justin Beaver not Bieber, Beaver to come back and let him DM his fans. He could sell a million in merchandiser tickets instantly. It would be insane. Uh, finally, Musk says, sends a message back. Uh, Morgan Stanley and Jared think you are using our friendship not in a good way. This makes it seem like I'm desperate. Please stop. <laughs> to which poor old Jason only ever want to support you. Elon, love you, man. And he said he'd jump on a grande for him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote about this today. I just put the link in the IRSA. I wrote about this today for my column on Medium. And I think that, you know, the way to understand how this works is that it's, um, you know, to be an innovator is not to have a unique genius. It's to have good timing. 
that that you know if you scroll down a little there leo you'll see these two diagrams i have about what it takes to invent the helicopter <laughs> so you know for 500 years people invented helicopters right they they were like oh i've seen a screw press and i've seen a maple key i've invented the helicopter <laughs> but it wasn't until someone else had invented you know uh oil, carbon alloy, oil <laughs> internal combustion yeah. that you could you could get a helicopter and you know kevin kelly calls this the adjacent possible and and this is why like when it's railroading time you get railroads and why like six people invented the radio within you know a, right. a year of each other and so on an idea and, whose time has come that's what that yeah. means right yeah. yeah. And so these guys, you know, they, they had a, they had a good idea. They were not unique in having that good idea. Um, but what they did have was access to the capital markets after, after edging out other people, after getting a little bit of advantage that they could use to, you know, buy other, other people's good ideas to, uh, suppress good ideas before they could take hold independently by, by buying out rivals or by, uh, using predatory pricing, all of that other stuff. And so what you end up with is people who are just sort of, mediocre donkeys no better than you or me you know i'm not claiming to be better than any of these people but i they're you know they're not better than me either and no one should put me in charge of the lives of 100 million twitter users or 3 billion facebook users um and, and you know like the i think we often focus too much on whether these people have the right stuff for that job and not enough on whether that job should exist we have and i've talked about this before there's this great man hypothesis uh, and because Elon is a billionaire or Mark Cuban's a billionaire, uh, we ascribe to them, you know, they become the Alexander the Greats. They become the great man when, in fact, maybe they didn't earn that sobriquet. Maybe they uh, maybe they're just the right person at the right time. That's what you're saying. Well, it's, I guess. The, it's the providential doctrine, right? If you are rich, you must be great. And if you are uh, if you are not rich, you aren't great. Right. And the way to tell whether someone is great is whether they're rich. I think and, we've come to know, a time when we've stopped worshiping billionaires or we're starting to stop worshiping <sighs> billionaires. I hope you say that I, I wrote something uh, unflattering about Palantir yesterday. And it turns out that Palantir is the latest meme stock. And there's a whole bunch of oh, weird Peter Thiel. You must be a short seller, man. They're in my mentions. Yeah. Who is paying you to write this? Oh my God. Uh, and so on and so on. Palantir should absolutely run the NHS. I've actually, I did a thread. I'm going to post a link in there. Wait I did a, a thread. Palantir should run the National Health Service of Britain. Yeah. So that's the thing is Palantir is, um, so Palantir won a, they didn't win. Palantir got a no bid 26 million pound contract to do work for the NHS. And they're trying to leverage it to this big 360 odd million, 320 million pound contract for the NHS. Uh, and they're pretty clear that no one is going to, um, no one is going to green like that because they're Palantir. And so their new strategy is they're buying all the companies that have NHS contracts. So this and is so if one of this is kind of maybe a little like Amazon's uh, plan to buy yeah. one medical. And uh, well, that's really interesting. So so for people who don't know, I'm sure most people know Palantir is is basically a surveillance <laughs> system, much like the Palantir in uh, the Lord of the Rings, uh, a uh, an eye of Sauron that collects data. Uh, and then sells it to who? Governments, law enforcement. Are they a data broker? Is that? I mean, are they? I mean, or is it that too down they're, market? They're an analytics platform. They're. I mean, they do a lot of like turnkey, uh, you know, human rights abuses as a service. So, like, if <laughs> you want to figure out how to do how to do algorithmic racism uh, with refugees, yeah, uh, it, you know, you can you can buy their service and feed it into them, and their their you know phrenology robot will tell you that all the bad uh, refugees are brown. Uh, it strikes me that that letting some a company like that own 
or not own, obviously nobody can own the NHS, but participate in any way with a service that has the health records of um, uh, millions of Britons seems yeah. like a bad idea. It's terrible. Not also, least because there's actually a really good... Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say there's a there's an amazing proposal in the offing. Ben Goldacre, who's an evidence-based medicine specialist and has done a bunch of important interventions uh, at the kind of national level in the British healthcare system, like the Register of All Trials and stuff that have absolutely revolutionized evidence-based medicine in the UK, did this thing called the Goldacre Report. And it's how you would build a research platform that allow you to extract insights from the collected health records of NHS service users without violating their privacy. And he's like, first you build an open platform that anyone can audit, anyone can use, and anyone can implement. And then you host that platform and close it off from everyone else with the NHS data in it. And you tell researchers, send me a query and I will run it on the platform and send you back the data. But you can't ever see that data. It's owned by the public, managed by the public. No, no, no. It's really good. No, no, no. This is a really good (laughs) idea. This is, this is a, this is a good, like uh, an auditable evidence it's private public it, service. It just reminds right? me of public IMDB platform. where you get everybody to create this great database. Oh, and but then it's you... owned by the public. So okay, the NHS okay. would own it. All right. So Palantir the NHS doesn't own it. Service. The NHS owns it. Okay. Yeah. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't get like if Arthur Anderson built it for them or someone, you know, PricewaterhouseCooper built it for them, they would have to make it open. They'd have to put the code on GitHub. Right. Anyone can see this code. Anyone can audit this code, but the service itself the only person, people with a login for it would be the people who ran research for the NHS. This is the but only way you could keep it anonymous, in yeah, effect. Well, yeah, well, and, 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 and um, but also productive, right? So if you're a private researcher at a university or pharma company, anywhere else, and you're like, I want to know what happens when these two interventions are paired. What does the data tell us? You got to give someone this drug when they're doing this, this PT, physiotherapy. There's huge value something else. Huge right. value. So you, you can then get back useful data, right? Useful conclusions, but you never handle the data. So the Goldacre report's really good. And it's such a, it's the opposite of the Palantir approach, which is like, we will, you give us your data, we'll apply our magic proprietary stuff that no one is allowed to know about. And then we'll tell you what's in your data. We'll tell you what, to, you know, we'll tell the LAPD where to go and do uh, stop and frisks. Which is, you know, like by an incredible coincidence that none of us could have predicted neighborhoods where a lot of brown people live. Yeah. Uh, is this what we, Amazon's doing, uh, Alex? Is this why Amazon's acquiring, uh, you know, one medical and others? I mean, I just want to make a comment on Palantir. I yeah. think that we need to understand that this is a consulting company, not a data company. And, uh, you know, they're they're more in line with a Deloitte than they are in line with any like cloud services provider. It's the analytics and, that they, they sell. Well, they sell the consulting, you know, right. they talk about the analytics. They're, they're sort of a dressed up consulting company. And my hot take is that um, we're going to end up seeing that, you know, they might be a, a meme stock today, but we will see the company end up in overtime, uh, you know, being worth, you know, what they should be worth, which is a lot less. And I think their worth is largely inflated through due to the government connections that they have actually in the Elon text. There was something really interesting about Joe Lonsdale making, who is the Palantir co-founder, you know, hanging out with, uh, you know, 100 uh, Republican congressmen. And we all know about Peter Thiel. So, um, you know, those political connections help a lot. But over time, I think we're going to see them for what they are, which is that they sh- we shouldn't dress them up in this, like, you know, uh, putting their special sauce on the analytics. Like, oh, that's they're interesting. a company at the end of the day. That's actually a good Oh, yeah, caution. I'm not saying it's good. Yeah. 
I, I'm not saying that it's useful insights, but I'm saying that like I think that there are people who will sell you confirmation bias as a service, yeah, right? That's right. I have a thing yeah. I, I wanted. I have I I need some um, uh, policy based evidence, please. Right. So I know what I want to do. Please produce the insights that will let me prove to my board or to other people or the market or whatever that or what I want to do is good. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about. I was giving Palantir all of this superpower to uh, see into our lives, and it's maybe the, it's like Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. There, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly the analog that I would make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And I also think, yeah. Or anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. Why are they I think buying that up? Well taken. Why are they buying up uh, these uh, suppliers to the NHS then? What's their goal they're, here, Palantir? They're public. They're yeah. yeah they're they're a looter. Right. They just want to they want to suck up a bunch of public private partnership money. Oh, OK. Because <laughs> that's again, that's for, why Willie you, Sutton robbed banks. Right. Because that's where the private public yeah, partnership the money, money is. Yeah. If you don't if you don't have the software that's going to take you there, you need the partnerships because you're a consulting company. That's boy. Thank you for that. You know, I've I've misinterpreted really kind of given them a lot more credit than they deserve uh, all this time. I just want to shout out the. um the people in the chat saying I'm here to defend big tech, but let's look at it reason, reasonably, right? And the more reasonable our conversation, the more progress we're going to make. So. I think what I really admire actually about uh, Corey's uh, book uh, is that it isn't a it, it doesn't paint a target on big tech's back. It paints a target on companies that have gotten too big, basically with predatory tech, predatory methods. Yes, is that fair? Yeah, I would say that the 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 what it does is it identifies the source of the pain that artists are feeling, right? Yeah. So our, we spent 40 years giving artists longer duration of copyright, easier enforced copyright, stiffer penalties for copyright, and, and increased scope of copyright. The entertainment industry has grown. It's gotten bigger. The share of income accruing to the workers who produce the materials that produce those profits has shrunk over the same time. And the reason is that these firms have... Uh, between them created choke points where if you want to reach your audience, you have to negotiate with them. And and typically, if there's another firm you can negotiate, it's another firm that has nearly identical or actually identical terms. And they've all converged on a set of negotiating terms that say whatever copyright you've been given, you have to hand over to us. And so giving creators more copyright won't help. In the same way that giving your bullied kid more lunch money won't help, not even if the bullies are like running a national campaign saying, won't someone think of America's hungry children, give them more lunch money, right? They're, they're just going to take whatever lunch money you give them. And that, the, and that, you know, the, that's the first half of the book is just showing how these, uh, monopsonistic, which when there's a small number of buyers who can control their sellers with this monopsonistic dynamic works and how it enables tactics that range from uh, simply unethical to just illegal, but no one can take them on, even though they are illegal. We we document multiple hundreds of millions of dollars in wage theft uh, from Audible creators uh, by Amazon. Um, but the second half of the book are interventions that aren't just more copyright that actually do widen out these choke points. And, you know, we talked about one on triangulation that I really like, which is that if you audit your royalty statements, which generally you're contractually uh, uh, allowed to do, if you audit your royalty statements, um, in order to get the money that you find is owed to you, the firm will generally say either you have to sue us or if you want a voluntary settlement, you have to submit to non-disclosure. And so we cite research uh, from a firm that specializes in auditing recording industry contracts. They've done tens of thousands. 
in all but one instance over decades, uh, every accounting error they located was in favor of the label, not the artist. This is an amazing coincidence. As I always say, it's this, the most incredible localized probability storm you can imagine. There's no other possible explanation for why all those accounting errors would, would just favor the, the company making the royalty statement. But if you go and you find missing money, and we have a source that found a six-figure error in their favor when they audited their royalty statement, um, you have to agree not to tell anyone else who's being ripped off in the same way where they should go and look for the money that's being stolen from them. And there's an actual fix for this, which is relatively straightforward. Because the industry is so concentrated, all of its contracts are consummated in New York, California, and because of Amazon, Washington State, contract being a matter of state regulation you could introduce laws at the state level that say, as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure is not enforceable when it relates to material omissions or errors in royalty statements that negatively affect people who are owed royalties. And then at the stroke of a pen, every artist in the world, because all of their contracts are governed by Washington, New York, or, or, or California law, every creator in the world would suddenly have money falling on them, more money than all of the copyright extensions the last 40 years have ever provided. And we just fill the back half of the book with this. We've got like, you know, 12 or 14 of these interventions that actually, rather than just giving artists the right to feel aggrieved that their copyright is being violated, will let them like buy groceries and put braces on their kids' teeth. <sighs> yeah. It's nice because you focus on artists. Obviously, it affects everybody from Amazon warehouse workers uh, to uh, burger flippers. Uh, but, it, you know, we artists, and I put myself in this category, we creators want to create. And uh, they take advantage of that fact, right? <laughs> Say, fine, go ahead. You keep, you keep creating. We'll take care of the rest. Thanks. Let's take a little break. Uh, want to talk more? We've got this... Uh, uh, new Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which, thanks to the uh, to Ted Cruz, is moving forward. Um, lots, lots more to talk about, including Elon Musk's robot. We didn't, we didn't even get to that yet. But first, a word from our sponsor, Corey Doctor is here. Alex Kantrowitz from uh, Big Tech, Big Tech Technology Podcast. Uh, our show today brought to you by Eight Sleep. If I am well rested tonight, you can thank my Eight Sleep. Pod Pro Cover 2. Now they've got an even better 8-Sleep Pod Cover. If you've got an 8-Sleep mattress or a pod cover, you already know. Uh, that's how I found out. Kevin Rose said, oh, you got to do this. Amy Webb got it. Then she said, oh, you got to do this. So finally, about a year ago, we got it. 8-Sleep is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of your bed. And the reason it's sides is so your spouse can have her temperature as well to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. Thanks to Eight Sleep, I'm getting more than half an hour more deep sleep every night, up over up to an hour now. Uh, it combines dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking, so it's watching you as you <laughs> as you sleep. So it turns out your body kind of wants it to get cool as you go into deeper sleep. I have my eight sleep set to be warm when I get in bed because it's nice and cozy. And then cool off. I go into deeper and deeper sleep from REM to deep sleep and then back up. And then it warms up again in the morning. But it'll adjust automatically or you can adjust it manually. As cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit, which was awesome during the hot heat wave we had this summer. Uh, and in the winter... As hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit, it monitors not only your temperature, your movements, but also the room temperature. Clinical data shows eight sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery. Uh, 
up to 32% improvement in sleep quality, up to 34% more deep sleep. More deep sleep makes a huge difference. I can, you know, I just feel it the next day. I I feel like I, I am, you know, in, in, alive and awake and, and everything feels better. My mental clarity is better. Eight Sleep just launched. In fact, we got to get one. This new next generation pod, the Pod 3, which has more sensors, double the amount of sensors. So they've got more accurate sleep and health tracking, giving you the absolute best sleep experience on Earth. I'm, I'm still loving our uh, Pod 2 Pro cover. I'm very happy with it. The, it's not magic, but it, it definitely feels like it. I love the night's sleep I get. And you might need this. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep. One of the primary causes of poor sleep, feeling hot at night. Feeling hot at night. You don't You don't want to be hot at night. Go to 8sleep.com slash twit. I'm going to get you $150 off at checkout. Sleep cozy this fall. 8sleep currently ships within the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and, and the EU and uh, Australia. Some countries in the EU. 8sleep.com slash twit. And uh, if you go there, you'll save $150 uh, at checkout on your pod. Get the pod. Trust me. Trust me. You'll sleep better. And everybody needs a better night's sleep. Thank you, 8sleep, for your support. Keep me up at night. The idea of having a humanoid robot walking around through my house. Fortunately, it probably isn't going to be Elon Musk's <laughs> robot. Uh, Elon uh, and Tesla have an AI event every year. Last year, you may remember, uh, Musk talked about his humanoid robot and brought out a dancer in a costume to uh, to show it off. Let me see if I can find a video of uh, Optimus is what he's calling it. I think because he's a fan of the Transformers. I don't know. Uh, Certainly made progress over the uh, leotard yeah, person. Yeah, definitely better than the leotard person. Uh, it barely could walk by itself. Here it comes. I'll turn off the sound because it's just too annoying. Um, Elon wants to put these in his factories, but I think he also feels, he says it could be transformative for civilization. He's still a little bit behind Boston Dynamics, not exactly doing backflips or opening doors for people. Do you really? That's the that's the dancer from last year. <laughs> it's not doing that. It is not doing that. Elon also. Maybe tweeted, I would take the dancer. Maybe I would take that dancer. <laughs> this is uh, this is uh, Elon's uh, video of the robot very shakily delivering. Oh, maybe you can water your plants. Oh, oh, that's good. Now remember- I thought. I thought. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Chelsea Steiner at the Mary Sue had a good. Uh, summation here like all musk promises this one is vague unimpressive and riddled with issues it's also wildly unrealistic to imagine that the robot will be capable enough to replace the labor force as we know it here's Call the, it when optimus can do half the moves of this superstar here's the uh here's the boston dynamics robot doing backflips dancing even this though they're carefully curated videos because you know yeah. half the time it falls over um yeah, I know, but who wants this anyway? Elon's factory already is loaded with robots, but they're the traditional giant German and Japanese robots that can pick up a car, turn it around, and put it back on the on the line and so forth. But can they? Oh, here, but here. can they automate the racism of his factory? No, no, that's uh, that's only I mean, that's, a human can really. Right now, their their justice. wage bill for doing the racism is very high, and they're going to need to automate that somehow. They're going to have to bring in Tay, uh, Facebook's uh, bot, and let Tay do it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. That was Microsoft's. Oh, Microsoft's. But, but here's another yeah. Yeah. 
Here's another unpopular take, since I guess that's my role on the show today. Um, I think we, we should be hesitant before we discount, you know, this type of thing. And it might not be the Musk bot, okay, which by all accounts is not a very impressive machine. Um, but we are seeing real interesting advances uh, in robotics right now, humanoid-style robotics. Um, and like we've seen with AI, these things, you know, we, we see these breakthroughs of research. We get, we get lots of duds. And then all of a sudden we type in a sentence and the robot is drawing a picture for us or we talk to it and we have a Google engineered fill, uh, engineer fooled that it's sentient. And right. I think that the interesting report that no one's paying attention to, everyone pays attention to what Musk does, but an interesting report that no one's paying attention to along this line is that Amazon has been, train, has been training uh, robots to pick items out of uh, boxes and then, you know, end up, you know, stowing them. So, um, most of Amazon's workforce in the in the warehouses are people that pick stuff out of boxes and then put them into shelves, pick them into from the shelves and put them into crates to be shipped off. And they're making real progress there. Yeah. And so I think this idea of like, you know, Elon's robot is e- easy to laugh at, but the advances that we're seeing, um, you know, in this type of robotics are very, very real. And the fact that Musk is talking about this appearing in, in the warehouse, so that doesn't come out of nowhere. And there is definitely, you know, some progress here. And, uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not laughing. I think that, that this is some serious technology to be reckoned with, you know, maybe so not coming th- from Elon Musk, but here today for sure. There's a, there's a term out of AI research, which is a centaur, which is when you have human AI collaboration, like a chess robot and a chess player playing together to do things that neither of them could do on their own. But there's also this, this, uh, sort of out of labor economics, there's this term, the reverse centaur, which is when, the body is the inconvenient meat puppet for the AI. Uh, and Amazon are kind of the masters of that. I'm going to paste a link into the chat of uh, a thing I wrote about reverse centaurs and Amazon. So that would be things like their drivers uh, being subjected to kind of uh, like superhuman conditions or superhuman constraints uh, by the um, uh, mm-hmm. by the uh, AIs that are monitoring them in the cars or packers being driven to do um, uh, unrealistic working uh, tempos in their warehouses. And and Amazon leads the country in warehouse injuries. Yeah. Uh, and the more automated an Amazon warehouse is, the more injuries people incur. I, I'll, I'll stipulate that like automation is a thing and robots are, are cool and that uh, Amazon has every motive in the world to try to make good robots. But I also want to sound the note of caution that a lot of what Amazon has booked to its shareholders as profits in automation have really been ways to get people to work in, at an unsafe tempo in ways that put themselves at risk. And in the case of their drivers, put other people at risk, other users of the road at risk. I know a kid who works at Whole Foods owned by Amazon, uh, and it's a very different experience. Sometimes some hours he's working for Whole Foods, some hours he's working for Amazon and the as the minute he's on the clock for Amazon, there are very clear, almost unachievable metrics for his performance. And they're made very clear. And uh, it is a very different experience. It's kind of, you, you nailed it. It's, uh, you are you are at the mercy of the machine. Yeah, and I need to state that I'm not celebrating this stuff, but when we look at the- No, Mastro don't downplay it, and, though. I think you're yeah, right, sure. Alex. Don't downplay I it. Think we, and I we've think we've seen this, this- very, very powerful technology. I agree. We've seen and, this with the explosion, thanks to Stable Diffusion right. and Dolly 2 and Mid Journey. I mean, just explosion in AI art. Do you think, though, 
you know, initially, my initial reaction was this is like a Cambrian explosion. Like suddenly this is taken off and we've reached the hockey stick with AI in some interesting way. And now more and more I'm thinking it's a parlor trick that the the AI is just it's not really AI almost. It's just combining images together in an interesting way. Nah, What's your take I, on it, Alex? I, I Have you tried Dolly before? Yeah, no, it's very impressive in Stable yeah. Diffusion and Midjourney. Yeah, they're very Stable they're, Diffusion they're seems to be the fastest moving because it's open source. People can run it on their own servers, and there are a lot of people who've adopted it. I follow the Stable Diffusion uh, Reddit subreddit, and uh, it's pretty amazing yeah. what what they're doing. And yet, <laughs> I'm not I, I, I'm not convinced. It's it, I don't know. Is it AI? Is it true AI? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the images are going to be as creative as, you know, the prompts that you're going to right. give them. I don't think we've had anything like this to, you know, in our history before. And, you know, there's there's so many interesting applications. Here's one. Um, I think that so uh, anyone who's worked uh, with a marketing department, you know, knows that it's always a struggle to communicate to the creative department what you need them to, to create or what you'd like them to create. Because words are imprecise in art, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. So you can't just be like, I need a picture of this and, and they'll know exactly what you're doing. Actually, that, you know, um, graphic designer to product manager or marketing manager is one of the most difficult pieces of communication, I think, in the business world. And I've been there and it's tough. Yeah. Um, and there are ways you get around it, make this more prominent or if we're trying to get this message across. We have a creative brief. Now, I think what this stuff is, the amateurs can make a version of the image, you know, with something like Dolly and then pass it to the professionals and then. Or, you know, be able or to vice versa. Both these, these systems yeah, seem to really right. work well with a yes. sketch. For Here's an right. example of using old yes. cartoons as init images, as Fred Flintstone turned into. This is, so start with, a, if it's you give these a starting point, it is kind of, here's Inspector right. Gadget, like, you know, I mean. I don't know. I, I continue to be blown away every time I do, you know, one of these searches. And I mean, Leo, it's sort of it kind of shows you how much advances we've made. I mean, how serious of advance uh, of advances we've made. If you're, if you're sitting there and typing in a sentence prompt, you know, on your browser. And the next thing, you know, a machine will draw it for you. Yeah. And you're like, meh, you know, like think about how far we've come, you know, if that's your reaction, yeah. it, the, this stuff becomes unremarkable once it works because we expect it. And I think that's the place we are today with these programs. Look at this uh, progression from what is essentially a stick figure as uh, this is waifu and stable diffusion combined together as it creates a more and more realistic with a little human help there. So it is a that, human partnership, I guess, that, that makes us. The funniest fun. thing I saw on Reddit last week, I just pasted the URL for it into the chat, is was a, um, a Drake meme whose uh, title is What Makes You a Human? And the, the pushing things away is uh, to love and care about others. And the, the yes, that's right, is the selecting all images with bikes. Um, <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah. That's good. You're talking it's, about CAPTCHA. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's I mean, I, I agree that, that this is a, a very powerful technology. It's, it's super interesting to work with. Um, you know, I've also been where you are trying to find art uh, to use as reference to give to an illustrator. Being able to describe art is really great. I mean... Google image search was, was a huge, um, uh, phase change for that as That's well. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I, uh, I was an imagineer for a while 
And in the Imagineering archive, there's a room, or I don't even know if it's still there, but there's a room with bankers boxes filled with magazine clippings of illustrations yeah. uh, organized mm. by theme. Interesting. And if you had to draw a water fountain, they just had a box of clipped out illustrations of water fountains and oh. you would ring down to archives and they would send up a box of reference for you. Yeah. You know, so they're, 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 you're, this, this is definitely something that is making the lives of illustrators easier, making it easier for people who aren't illustrators to talk to people who are and say, that's what I mean when I say water fountain, this picture here is the the kind of water fountain. I mean, not this picture over here. And, and certainly like Dolly and, and all the other ones um, help there as well. But I will say that I don't see a path from statistical inference and, uh, you know, uh, deep learning networks to GAI. I, I, I think that to say that if oh, we do it, enough yeah. statistical inference, we get GAI is like saying if we breed these horses carefully enough, we'll have a locomotive. Right. Right. They're, He's they're arguing like, general uh, artificial wisdom. intelligence, human style intelligence. Yeah. But is there anybody actually arguing that, Corey? Oh, yeah. Tons. Oh, yeah. That's really? the whole argument, right? The whole argument that um, mm -hmm. uh, well, the whole like Nick Bostrom, Elon Musk, uh, Skynet is coming out of our AI. I have looked at open AI and what it can do. And now I'm mm -hmm. afraid for the human race they're they're basically saying we are going to selectively breed this horse long enough that eventually we're going to have a locomotive and then it's going to kill us all and it it is like such um obvious nonsense to me that i'm quite baffled by it uh and, so and, you know, what is the discontinuity so it's obviously horses and locomotives clear but so but this is about human cognition. cognition is there something about human cognition that is unreachable in no, no, no. Point. It's just not. It's just not a it, human cognition is not statistical inference. It, you know, we, it's we don't a different know exactly method entirely. It it's not. It's not. I mean, statistical statistical inference might be a component of it. It probably is. Uh, but the idea that that um, in, increasing uh, innovation in the realm of statistical inference eventually produces uh, human cognition is just it's it's wrong. Uh, and, you know, there's this there's this corollary which is uh, uh, the um, automation unemployment corollary, right? The, the looming automation unemployment crisis, which again, I think is just like, doesn't, isn't right. Like it's, it's foundations are wrong. So like you look at the stories about uh, automation unemployment, you see things like, oh, the most popular job in America is truck driver and driving trucks is something that we can do with ML because we can give them a dedicated lane on the highway and set them to following each other and basically invent a shitty train. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics category for truck driver incorporates anyone who operates a heavy goods vehicle. So it's not the most like 16 wheeler driver is not the most popular job in America. It is a sure. relatively small and unimportant part of our overall economy not that those people are unimportant but like that you know if all of the truck drivers were unemployed tomorrow the change in the unemployment figures would not be very large meanwhile we're just not getting anywhere with the self-driving cars right like the, the there's so much smoke and mirrors and self-driving cars the only ones that seem to perform at all are the ones that actually just have a human remotely driving the car overseeing the car and if those people's attention wanders which it will inevitably uh, then those cars become murder bots. Um, and, you know, it raises an important point, which is that we already have a lot of human intelligence, like we have 8 billion humans. Um, we don't have enough non-human intelligence, right? Like the, the uh, capacity to be vigilant for things that happens very rarely 
is is not a capacity that humans mostly have. A, a few people may have it, but it's not a widespread trait in our population, which is why the TSA is really good at spotting um, water bottles and really bad at spotting guns <laughs> because they never see a gun, right? But they see water bottles all day long. Like you cannot leave neurons trained to do a pattern recognition for a pattern that you never encounter because those neurons will be retrained to make you better at the pattern recognition that you do all day, right? And so they just forget, like you can train them to spot guns on an x-ray, but then they'll forget, not because they're lazy or whatever, but because they never see guns on an x-ray. They see water bottles all day long. That's interesting. So you're not, you're not, doesn't require a notion of a human soul or some sort of magical uh, capability, the cognition, yeah. human no, cognition. Look, also, I just don't also think the what it is. Yeah. The conversations that I think there are conversations that really occur on the fringes about this stuff leading to general intelligence. And I, I think that that, um, you know, the mainstream conversation about this stuff looks at it rationally and says there's a lot of stuff that we can do. Humans and artificial intelligence combined. And so I think during that, the lockdown, know, is, sorry, go ahead. I beg your pardon. Go ahead. No, no, no. You finish. I'm sorry. I thought you were done. Yeah, I apologize because the latency in the in the Skype is is killing us as usual. Not Skype, Zoom. Uh, go ahead, Corey. I was just going to say during the lockdown, the World Economic Forum asked me to give them a talk on technological unemployment, and when I sent them the text of the talk, they withdrew the invitation, so I turned it into a column, uh, and it's that it just put it in the URL there. You, but you weren't saying uh, what they wanted you to say, Corey. But basically, I said like I don't think we're going to have. AI driven unemployment, because even if we automate some stuff like we're going to have to, you know, relocate every city 20 kilometers inland over the next 300 years, that's full employment for everyone, no matter how many robots we build. There's just like more work than than we can imagine. Uh, and they, they didn't like that at all. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Didn't fit their uh, their model. But they, they really believe and that's why I raise it. They really believe in technological unemployment, general AI breakthroughs on the immediate horizon. You know, they, they, they aren't fringe beliefs in the, in, the, in the halls of power or in the halls of business or even in finance. They're, they are accepted as gospel. You know, there are a few I mean, things like general AI. I, I don't know. There are a few things I, like I, general I, AI. Hold on a second. Now. General AI, uh, fusion, quantum computing. Uh, it seems prudent to perhaps consider their eventual invention even sure. if they're not necessarily around the corner uh go ahead alex i mean it's just not what i hear you know i mean maybe you think I'm it's gonna happen folks no i'm I, I do will it happen eventually who knows um but this i i just don't agree with Corey about um you know this being an accepted thing um at least not in the conversations i hear you know, maybe the uh, oh, you're saying that people don't believe general AI no, is just around the corner. I, I don't think yeah. so. No, I think yeah. look at the response to what happened with this Google engineer who said that the chatbot was well, uh, Google didn't like it. Sentient. Google <laughs> fired him. Anyone who, who with any standing in the research community, yeah, they all said that's right. um, sure. you know, called him an idiot. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, and like I don't know. I I mean, Corey, maybe the, the you know the influencer class likes to talk about this at their conferences. Um, but this idea that AGI is right around the corner, just to me, I've never heard that, um, you know, from credible folks in the industry. Sure. Well, I mean, science fiction writers certainly think it's nonsense, right? Like it is a recurring theme at science fiction conventions. Why are all these CEOs right. out there saying this is this, this is, is uh, this, on yeah. the horizon? But they are saying well, I think this I think the CEOs aren't saying it. I think the CEOs are saying that it's very powerful technology. But I don't think they're saying we're going to be hand in hand with 
artificial gen- general intelligence. And, and that's what we're working toward. I mean, I mean, you know, investing in and, that, and Wall Street can believe it. That's the hypothesis Who's, of the Center for Existential Risk who are like, you know, have attracted like billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. Right. I mean, well, aren't that. you already saying that we shouldn't equate money with smarts? No, it's true. It's true. Right. So there, what I'm saying is that there, it may be a small number of very rich people who believe this, but mm-hmm. there are, there are some very rich people who believe it and a bunch of weird stands for them who also believe I, it. I just think if you speak with people, credible folks in the industry, you know, folks who are actually doing the research, um, like Nick Bostrom, sure. I mean, I, I like the guy, he's a philosopher. He's not, right. he doesn't work in, in machine learning. Yep. And you speak with researchers, you speak with the tech companies, you know, they yeah, might yeah. use marketing terms to talk about the power of their artificial intelligence soon to our Pachai calling it, you know, as powerful as fire. You know, that sounds like marketing to me. Um, but I never hear him or anybody at Google talking about, you know, us reaching artificial general intelligence outside of one guy, you know, who actually right. has an interesting story to tell. And I did have him on, on my podcast. We had an interesting conversation. Um, that, that being said, um, you know, he's the, ex- the extreme exception and, and not the rule. You're, you're, so I, that's good. I have to, uh, I have, this is the, uh, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, uh, Greg Lemoyne, right? Uh, Blake Lemoyne, yeah, yeah, Blake Lemoyne, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, spoke the, to I think the a, uh, I think the picture yeah. kind of says it all. If if that's not uh, stable uh, diffusion, yeah. I, think, I think it says it all. <laughs> I think that says Blake it is all. an interesting. He's an interesting cat. character. He's not dumb, yeah, uh, by yeah. any means. Um, you know, obviously, but he's also a priest. He's spiritual in ways that you know right. I think are pretty relevant, right, uh, to the story. And uh, he had some pretty neat interactions with Lambda. He drew the conclusion, and he was, I think, predisposed to believe that there was going to be a, a you know general intelligence that is going to speak to him, um, you know, through a bot. He's like talked about it before he came out, saying he believes Lambda is is this intelligent. He but, may also believe in fairies. I mean, look, it's not what, what I know, told that, him is is that I think that he's wrong, right. um, and he'll be in the history books. So I right. think that's Isn't like he a self described reasonable. Mystic? Yeah, he's a mystic. He calls yeah. himself a mystic, right? Yeah. Look, yeah. I encourage people who are who are on this who want to hear. So I had um, Blake on the on Big Technology podcast. We spoke for an hour and a half about his interactions with Dolly. I kind of thought it was pretty interesting. You know, to I hear will from listen his to perspective. It. I, yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. talking about how the the bot you know hired a lawyer. This again goes to like my my comment before about how far we've come. That if the technology can now fool Google and engineer into thinking it's sentient, then it's probably like pretty interesting technology that we should be focusing on, you know, what it can do, the dangers of it, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think that often these these uh, conversations about is it sentient or not, you know, kind of take our eye off the ball um, yeah. on, on that front. And then I also had uh, Gary Marcus on um, who also like, well, anyway, I had Gary Marcus on who's uh, he called it um, something like like foolishness on stilts or something like that. Nonsense on stilts. <laughs> and we talked through all the other, you know, uh, counter arguments to Blake. But yeah, it's look, I think the one thing that we can say is we're in a very interesting moment in technology where research is moving forward and the, the practical uses of the stuff that is being development is being developed is, is moving forward. Is it pointless it to speculate about general AI, though? I mean, uh, I think, is it so I far mean, off that to, why should we think about it yeah, or should we be thinking it. about it now? I mean, is it fun? You know, that's like, we have to admit that like humans have a capacity, high capacity and interest in fun. And it's fun to speculate about yeah. just like the same. Think about how much energy goes into people trying to game out sports games before they happen. You know, is Mark Zuckerberg going to be in the ring? You yeah, know, we like but I don't that. think that yeah. it's, you yeah. know, there's, there's practical and then there's just enjoyable. Like we all love to have our minds wander. This is why this is such a big part of science fiction, you know, to think about where it could go. But like, 
the, this, um, you know, the idea that it's, it's, you know, it's coming, it's here and we better get ready to make our robot friends pretty quickly. You know, that seems outlandish. Yeah, to me. Bostrom's uh, simulation hypothesis is really just a fun thing to think about, but kind of yeah, and pointless to spend any right. real energy on. I had a very interesting conversation with Bostrom for my book. And, you know, I was like, this was a Black Mirror chapter that I wrote. And I was like, all right, Nick, like, go ahead and tell about all the terrible things that are going to happen. He's like, listen, I've kind of been like, have this bad brand because I did think about it, but maybe it's actually <laughs> going to be good, you know, when it comes here. So... General AI or uh, the simulation is is, a, is <laughs> this is a new one. Well, Leo, oh. yeah, let's talk about oh the simulation. You know, is there free will? Are you know, is there yeah. any difference from a simulation and what we're what we're living here? I These think, are fun uh, things to talk about. We've been about. debating that since Augustine. Yeah. I don't think there's exactly uh, there's nothing new about uh, about all right. But that. it does. The cool thing about this is that it does help reframe you know the discussion or like right. give us a new angle to think about it. Um, but I think right now what it is is fun. It's fun. So. There was a wonderful book this year from James Bridle, who's the, you, you may know him from some of his weird stunts. He's the guy who built a self-driving car and then surrounded it in a circle of salt that it thought was a uh, road uh, marking that it couldn't cross. He's also the guy who did the research that uh, found that uh, YouTube Kids was full of all these weird semi-automated super Oh, yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. So he wrote this book called Ways of Being that's about um, extending... Um, um, a view of personhood to the inanimate, to uh, regular software, to machine learning, and so on. That makes quite an interesting case for it. I just uh, just pasted a link to my um, review of the book into the chat there. Uh, he is a, a fascinating guy, and you know he he makes a great case for the idea that the fact that something isn't an isn't intelligent does not mean that it, we shouldn't think of it as a person. Wow, like ecosystems and. Uh, um, and rocks and stuff. You don't need He's a Gaia hypothesis to treat yeah. the Earth with. There's respect. his there's his car in the salt circle. <laughs> what happened? It just sit there. It, it couldn't move. <laughs> and he wrote about how it made him feel bad. Right, that yeah. he invented a. He hurt its feelings. <laughs> and and well, it hurt his feelings. Was his point, and that like the the act the the that you know acknowledging that it feels bad to. Uh, design a thing to do something and then frustrate it is a step towards a kind of wider empathy. He's, I really like him. Do you think he apologizes to uh, Amazon's echo? If he uh, swears at it, <laughs> do you know, there's a lot of people who think you should, who think that echo you should, thinks you with should. Your voice assistant. Go ahead yeah. and swear at echo. It'll, it'll chastise you for, for mistreating it. <laughs> yeah. That's creepy to me. I don't, I think that's a, 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 a bridge too far. But there's, you know, our, my wife and I have an argument. She says you shouldn't teach people to be, or require people to be polite to inanimate objects. That's kind of imbuing it with more power than it deserves. It's an inanimate so the, object. The, you know, there's a vegan slash vegetarian argument that says that what whatever you treat with the least respect is the floor at the, at the, on, uh, that your respect for everyone else won't drop below. So whatever it is you respect least in the world, however much respect you afford that, that's how little respect you will treat anyone else with. You'll never treat them with less respect than that. And so if you raise the floor for how much respect you afford to the thing you respect least, then you end up raising the amount of respect you bring to everything else in the world. I like that. I like that. I think that's good. Do you, do you follow that? 
Probably not very well. <laughs> Do you ever swear <laughs> at Echo? <laughs> uh, we don't have any voice assistants in my house. So that's how little respect you have for them. Yeah, I have, a, I have enough respect for them not to have one. <laughs> Let's take a little break. Having fun, I have to say, with Alex Kantrowitz's Big Technology Podcast. You can see why you want to listen to this. Boy, you have some great people on. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Leo. Yeah, we're having a nice run these days. Yeah, and his book, of course, uh, Always Day One, which is more than about Amazon, apparently. Uh, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft. Chapter in each. Zuck speaks with me for it. How the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. Forever. <laughs> it is a fun subtitle. Yeah, I love it. Did you come up with that or your publisher? We had a bit of a back and forth about it. They came up with it. I'm like, I love that we use it. And they said, no. I was like, no? They said, they no? Said, no. They said, we don't, we don't think we should use it. And I was like, it's yours. Back and forth. And eventually it stuck. We used it. And uh, it's fun. I think people read into it what they want. I love it. Um, My yeah. first book, I wanted to call it How to Get the Dog Hair Out of the Disk Drive. The publisher renamed it 101 <laughs> Computer Answers You Need to Know, uh, which turned out to be a strategic mistake because shortly thereafter, Kim Commando came out with a book called 1001 Computer Answers You Need to Know. <laughs> oh, my God, really? <laughs> and I, I think you can guess which one sold better, right? <laughs> it should have been 101 Dalmatian Hairs in Disk Drive. <laughs> there you go. I think How to Get the Dog Hair Out of the Describe was a pretty good title, but all right. That's good, yeah. Yeah. Our show today brought to you by Podium. You know text messaging works. Uh, if you want to reach Elon Musk, uh, text, text him. Well, it turns out businesses can use text messaging to stay in touch with their customers. And this is this is, came in at a very welcome time. It's been a tough couple of years for small businesses. You know, you know supply chain issues. COVID, uh, but one of the things I think we learned from COVID uh, is that staying in touch with customers via text is kind of the way they prefer to communicate. You know, your food is ready, come pick it up. Your groceries are ready, come pick it up. Uh, a lot of us don't want to use the phone to call a business, whether plumber, landscaper. We don't want to play phone tag. Maybe we'd prefer to leave a quick message. But if you're running a business, you can take advantage of that. If the only way to reach you is with a phone number, people are actually going to turn their back. You're going to walk away from you. But if that phone number can be texted or you could have on your website a widget that says send me a text or you can use text messaging to reach out to customers. For instance, when I uh, every time I uh, uh, leave my dentist now, I get a text message saying rate, rate us on, uh, on Yelp or, or Google Business. Um, there's an ice cream shop in town that uses Podium. Every three or four weeks, it says, oh, we haven't seen you in a while. Here's a coupon for ice cream. No, <laughs> but it really works. Gets me in the door. Podium gives businesses the tools to compete with the convenience offered by bigger businesses like Amazon. So this is really a boon for the small business from healthcare providers like my dentist to plumbers. Over 100,000 businesses are texting with customers using Podium. Customers love the convenience, but business, you will love the results. One car dealer sold a $50,000 truck and four text messages. Uh, in fact, that's really, that's the only way I want to interact these days with my, uh, my, my dealership, right? In fact, I just got a text because I'm bringing the car in tomorrow to confirm. A jeweler sold a $5,000 ring, coordinated curbside pickups, did it all in text. A dentist who had, had gotten really behind on his collections 
decided to use text messages. 70% of the outstanding collections came in in two weeks. It's just easier for people. It's not that they didn't want to pay them. It just it was convenient. It was easy. It was fast. With Podium's all-in-one inbox, you can do more than just chat. You can get online reviews. Just send a link. That works so much better. Collect payments right through Podium from anywhere. You can send marketing campaigns and actually get a response. It's just a quick text, and your staff will love it, too, because all the communications now from your customers come into one inbox. makes it easy for you to keep track of what's going on with any given customer. I want you to try Podium. It's really cool. See how Podium can grow your business. There's a great demo video at podium.com slash twit and a pretty good deal, too. P-O-D-I-U-M dot com slash twit. Podium. Let's grow. Podium.com slash twit. Let's grow. Let's go. Let's grow. The ultimate text messaging platform. Thank you, Podium. You actually, Alex, had a uh, a good piece about the judge in the court of chancery that Elon Musk is going to be facing. Uh, this is coming up October 17th. And uh, you did a profile of Kathleen McCormick. Who is she, and 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 is this good for Elon or bad? She's a fascinating character, and I would say it's largely bad for Elon that she's going to be there. So um, just to give a little context as to who she is, she grew up in Delaware. Um, she was the daughter of two public school teachers. Her dad uh, coached football. You know, Her mom eventually rose to become an administrator, both duties they did, in addition to the teaching. Um she is the first person from her town, uh, Smyrna, which is a middle-class town in Delaware, um, to go to Harvard. Uh, and, you know, thinks she's going to go back into education, gets involved in a legal nonprofit, starts to see how the law could be used for good, goes to Notre Dame, because I think because her dad was a massive Notre Dame fan, um, <laughs> and, uh, and gets a law degree there working on human civil rights. Um, actually uh, takes a job at a nonprofit and goes to argue in front of the court in private practice and eventually becomes, uh, you know, a vice chancellor. And then from there, she becomes the first female chancellor of the court in 229 years in its entire history. Um, and she has this very interesting ruling as vice chancellor where, you know, these, these, these two private equity companies, one sells this cake decorating company to the other and then COVID hits. And then they're like, well, listen, no one's going to want to decorate cakes anymore. The buyer said that. And they, they said, okay, we're not going to um, buy this company anymore. And the seller sued them and it lands in front of vice chancellor McCormick. And she basically says like, look, you signed a deal and I'm the judge. And most important for me is deal certainty. And uh, that's what our, our job is here is to make sure that when you agree to a deal, the deal goes through. And she forced that cake deal, cake decorating wow. deal through. That's got to be scary for uh, for Elon. Although, absolutely, I don't think Deco Pack went for forty four billion dollars. No, it was five hundred fifty million. So it was a much oh. smaller scale. Well, that's actually surprising. Five hundred fifty, mm -hmm. a half a billion for a cake decorating company. It's a pretty legit cake de decorating company. <laughs> wow, the world, their tagline is hilarious. It's like we decorate the world's best cakes or something like that. I mean, that's pretty good. That. Half a billion in yeah. a decade. Wow. Not, not bad. So, yeah. you know, this one is much bigger, $44 billion. Um, and I, I just don't think the size of the deal is going to come in. It, everything I know about her doesn't lead me to believe that the size of the deal or the court's ability to enforce is going to come into 
the ruling that she's going to give. Now, now the question is, you know, what happens with this whistleblower testimony, which I think could throw a wrench uh, in, in, in uh, Twitter's ability to force it to close. Uh, but Elon did sign the, sign the deal saying that he was going to buy it. And if you look at the past precedent of this judge, it would lead you to believe that, you know, she, she'll make it go through all things being equal. So very interesting person. It might be a scary proposition. I'm not sure I want Elon Musk to own Twitter, to be honest. Well, neither does Elon. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like he should do yeah. something to make Twitter whole. I mean, this whole mm-hmm. drama has cost Twitter staff a lot of upset, of probably a lot of money. Um, Elon, uh, you know, was pretty flippant in the whole thing. So I feel like he desert. He needs to be somehow chastened. But, boy, I'm not sure I want him to be forced to. To buy of course, but, Twitter, but that that won't come into consideration. No, she, that's not a consideration. Ruling. It's just a exactly. It's a contractual is, matter. That's which makes it interesting. Yeah. And then, okay, then you get into okay. So maybe they settle. How much will Elon need to pay Twitter to make it whole? It has to be you know twenty billion dollars, something in that range. Yeah, because you look at Facebook, right, which is maybe an analog, which whose stock has gone down. I don't know, fifty-seven, sixty percent this year. And without without Musk, you know, Twitter's stock would probably fall fall by that same amount. So, um, and now they're going to really struggle to operate. Their CEO has like very little credibility inside the company and everyone's leaving. Yeah. So what, yeah. what's it going to take? It might end up having to, it might end up being, and I've always thought, okay, very little chance this deal actually goes through. Now I'm like, well, maybe, maybe there is a chance. Well, I mean, the markets might look agree it, with you because the stock price has been slowly ratcheting yeah. up, not 5420 as Elon promised to pay, but it's been going up, uh, and I. You it know, might be a bargain. I mean, yeah. this is an investment advice, but it might if they be a got if they the got some right many billions of dollars uh, in cash, who knows? They might find a way, a way forward. So the, the question I don't know the answer to, but maybe you guys do. Given how leveraged and uh, how great the the profit to to valuation or earnings to valuation ratios are and how much room there is for those stocks to move uh if elon has to flog 20 billion dollars worth of his tesla stock does that trigger a cascade of effects that could endanger all of his businesses some of his businesses and would the judge consider that i don't think the judge would consider that but yeah i would say that remember tesla is a story stock so yeah. what happens yeah. when Elon's business genius, right? If that takes a hit, that myth. Um, look, he's a great businessman. He's built some amazing companies, no doubt about that. Um, but if he makes a very stupid mistake, uh, and this might end up proving to be one, you know, that could really cause uh, an impact to his other businesses. Yeah, I, I, Elon. I had think Larry, some, despite yeah. being the richest man <laughs> in the world, Elon, most mm-hmm. of the forty-four billion came from Elon's uh, loans against Elon's Tesla stock and from. Mm-hmm. People like Larry Ellison, who threw in a billion, just because it's going to be tough for him. We're buds. Two billion from Ellison. It's going to be. Oh, tough it ended up being two. So, can the judge the compel those people to follow through, or does the entire burden fall on Elon? I, I think, think that's got to be a, a separate question. court action. Yeah. yeah. Right. You've got to, you've got to say do do I does does Larry Ellison sending a DM to Elon going lol one billion or two you tell me <laughs> constitute a contract. Was literally by the way the pretty the, much the word for word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. This this thing this thing will will definitely extend beyond October because it, well they'll go to appeals and then of course there's the money question. Um, but but it's it's I don't know it's definitely wow. been fun and wild wow. to follow. 
Wow. But it could do some serious damage to Elon, no doubt about it. Good piece I mean, in he's, the... He's, uh, a, he's very rich, but $40, $44 billion is nothing to sneeze at. No, and I think you're right. I think that uh, uh, having to sell that much stock, Tesla stock, or a significant portion of Tesla, you know, 20 yeah. billion Tesla stock, uh, right. would tank the stock. And that's a really interesting... And Tesla shareholders hate this already. Oh, yeah. And it's not exactly like he's in the middle of a bull market where the market will just pick right. it right back up. Right. Market's unforgiving right now. Yeah. Better work on that humanoid robot pretty darn hard, Elon. <laughs> oh, well, the market opportunities for a, for a humanoid robot that can't do much are really, you know. <laughs> Amazon's already selling the Astro. <laughs> I you mean, gotta, you combine that, that with yeah. the with the flamethrowers, and the next thing you know, <laughs> and 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 putting holes in the ground for your Teslas to drive. Yeah, along. yeah. And, and somehow somehow defeating geometry with the power of your mind, so that <laughs> you can add more cars to the roads without creating more congestion. You got to make the robot buy Twitter. That's the only solution. Oh, there right. you well, go. do you remember that there was that mesothelioma blog that uh, it would just take stories from Google News about mesothelioma and then put them on a Blogspot blog with AdSense and then use the revenue from that to buy Google stock. And the idea was that if you ran it long enough, you would eventually own Google. <laughs> it's like a paperclip uh, AI. Yeah. <laughs> eventually you'll own the universe. Stop, don't I stop at Google? Take I, I want to say Matt Howie from Metafilter built Sounds it. like a Matt Howie joint. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how did it do? Did it did it run or was it a thought experiment? It made a bunch of money. You no, know, for nice. a while, mesothelioma was the top AdSense word on right. Google. And right. So every one of those clicks was worth, I don't know, like 20 bucks or something. That's the uh, asbestos lung uh, disease that you see uh, late night TV ads for uh, all yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, what about, what do you think about the Journalism Competition and Pre Preservation Act? Uh, Amy Klobuchar's uh, bill which was initially uh, blocked by Ted Cruz. Cruz uh, last week changed his mind and allowed it through, and it has advanced out of committee with a 15-7 to 7 vote. The seven were Republicans uh, voting against it, but uh, there were enough Republicans voting for it that it went through. Uh, Ted Cruz says, I think this amendment protects against this antitrust liability being used as a shield for censorship. Big tech hates this bill. That, to me, is a strong positive for supporting it. There are a number of problems with this bill, including this thing called the First Amendment to the Constitution. Um, I'm not sure if it'll ever get to a vote on the Senate floor, but it is at a committee. Should I be worried, uh, Alex? Because... I could see a lot of problems with this thing. You know, I don't think you should be worried. Um, I think this bill, I, I like where this bill comes from, right? Which is that publishers don't have the ability to negotiate with platforms in, in a collective way. And the platforms have this yeah, you disproportionate were, influence over that. Corey's been talking about that. That's in the book. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that uh, you know, you're enjoined by law not to uh, collude. Mm -hmm. So they have no way but, to negotiate. So this gives them essentially... Uh, a, a a safe harbor so that they can right get together and negotiate with Google and Facebook. Yeah. Now here's my. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Also, <laughs> I don't know what's in the water this week, but hey, let's go for it. Do um, it, man. Do I, it. I, I think that publishers trying to make their livelihood over negotiating with Facebook and Google are playing a losing game. Yes, I agree. Um, I don't think you can depend on a platform for your dis. I mean, yeah, I don't think you can depend on a platform 
with algorithms and a newsfeed for your distribution. I don't think you should wonder about a platform like Google that's sending you traffic, um, you know, how much they should pay you for displaying the link. I think that's a net benefit, you know, to publishers. And my bit, I run a small media company and we don't depend at all on, um, you know, Facebook traffic or Google traffic. And so, and I think it's better that way because we make the decisions, you know, for the reader, not for the platforms. Right. Um, and so ultimately, like, I think that having this right to negotiate is good. Um, but do I think that it's like an earth shattering uh, thing? No, especially given that Facebook uh, has made a, a real effort to reduce news links in the newsfeed. Um where they used to be a big portion of what was going on on Facebook. Now they're getting, getting close to non-existent. And, and I think that's largely good. I don't think we should get our news through Facebook. I think there, we should find other ways to do it. There is the argument. This is based on the Australian bill, which was promoted by uh, Rupert Murdoch, who wanted to you know, get a little mm-hmm. more link money out of uh, the big uh, giants. And uh, there is the argument that it's somewhat worked in, uh, in Australia uh, despite Facebook's retaliatory uh, attempt for a while, Facebook said, well, no more news links for you. Uh, there's also the concern, though, that uh, it doesn't uh, apply to anybody who employs more than 1,500 people. And there's some concern that in order to to make this work, uh, uh, private equity will go around buying newsrooms and cut it down to 1,499 people. Oh so, they can, so they can participate. People have wild yeah. imaginations. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be the main part of a company's business, the idea that private yeah. equity will go and trim. I mean, private equity trims for its own reasons, but not to take advantage of the protections under this bill. Corey, you've pointed out that, that, that you know, journalism has definitely suffered. Actually, you have a whole chapter talking about uh, Craigslist versus Google links uh, and which is the most damaging uh, to uh, to uh, news. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the problem with this solution is that it misunderstands what it is technology did to news. So it's definitely true that um, Craigslist uh, made a more efficient way of doing classified advertising than newspapers had. But there's a reason that Craigslist was better for classified advertising. It wasn't just a different cost basis. It's that in the run-up to the Craigslist era, the web, I don't know if he's 1.5, web 1.5, something like that. Uh, in the run-up to that, there was a series of media roll-ups right after the Telecommunications Act in the Clinton years um, that allowed uh, radio stations and TV stations and newspapers in a single market to all come under common ownership and also for there to be more cross-market ownership. And you saw lots and lots of regional local newspapers coming under a single owner, uh, large corporate owners, as opposed to the historic basis for news, which was, you know, in, outside of the big cities, the historic basis for news was you had like a patrician family who owned the newspaper who mostly ran it as a business to allow uh, appliance manufacturer or appliance retailers and grocers to reach people who are interested in the sports scores. And, uh, you know, in between some of that money was peeled off to send a college kid to the town meeting uh, to write down what people were saying and whatever controversy there was. And those papers were, were mostly rolled up into these big corporate uh, national organizations and um, one of the ways that the new owners tried to justify those roll-ups was in part by trimming. Um, they trimmed a lot of the regional sales force. And so the local shoe leather sales force who knew how to sell classified ads to local merchants were replaced by centralized call rooms uh, where you would just call Chicago or New York or whatever when you or, or somewhere in the Midwest when you wanted to place an ad in the newspaper down the road. Um, 
Another way that they realized uh, new efficiencies was by selling off buildings, physical plant, uh, and outsourcing core functions, which exposed them to a bunch of shocks, like rent shocks and uh, other shocks, interest rate shocks, and so on, where where suddenly when things got bad, it got worse, right? Because when things got bad, suddenly their rent might go up or the cost of leasing their presses might go up, and then they would be really exposed and so you had this industry that had already weathered so many technological shocks, right? The newspapers survived the telegraph, radio, the television, cable, satellite, and suddenly they were uniquely vulnerable to Craig Newmark, who is a lovely guy and very smart and who did something really cool, but was not, I think, intrinsically more disruptive to their business than cable television. Yeah. And and the reason was that they had made themselves vulnerable. So that's one of the things that's that's hurt the newspapers right is that is this combination of consolidated ownership and changes in the technology but the other thing that's really hurt them and that is not addressed in this bill at all is fraud in the ad markets so the ad duopoly facebook and google have now there's a pretty strong evidentiary basis to say that they steal from publishers Right, the Operation Jedi Blue or Project Jedi Blue, which um, was disclosed in the Texas AG case against Facebook, shows that the senior management team of Facebook and Google sat down and illegally colluded to rig the ad market so that publishers would get less and, av- and advertisers would pay more. Um, you add to that other forms of fraud like the pivot to video, which was based on lies about how many people were watching videos, which cost the um, newsrooms of the country and around the world, you know, billions in aggregate and made them even more vulnerable. And you have this thing where where you have um, tech platforms that are stealing money from uh, news organizations and we're acting like the problem is that they're stealing content from news organizations and allowing your users to talk about the news or providing links to the news so people can talk about it is not stealing the news. If it's a secret, it's not the news, right? The thing that it makes it the news is that we talk about it. But stealing your ad money is an actual problem that we can put our fingers on and that we can actually put our hands around. And we could say, all right, we're going to have transparency rights. We're going to follow the model of Sarbanes-Oxley and create individual criminal liability for executives who knowingly sign or produce false uh, um, reports on financials. You know, like things that actually address themselves to the problem instead of trying to take something off to one side, which is, you know, creating a stream of payments based on the bizarre idea that you should pay to link to the news or let your users talk about the news instead of unrolling the the fraud which which is a thing that would benefit all kinds of creators including newsrooms but also individuals and so on agreed and in the meantime i would say publishers should should not do business with these companies do whatever you can to stay away from them and be uh be immune to uh well I mean, their ability and there's ways to they do own it. the stack Right. They yeah, own, well, like listen, it's very hard can, not to do business with them. I disagree with you. I disagree. I think that that um, there's independent ad tech that you can use out there. There's also subscriptions. And I think podcasts are also, you know, another another revenue source that you don't need to go through them. Here's another uh, great story about fraud in the ad world. And it has to do with podcasts. And uh, this is this story that's going to get me fired from my uh, employer, uh, the iHeart the fabulous iHeartMedia Corporation. According to Bloomberg, podcasters have been buying ads in mobile games uh, that when you click on the ad, downloads the podcast. Every time a player taps on one of these fleeting in-game ads and you, you get some virtual loot for doing it, a podcast episode in the background begins downloading 
which means the podcast company can claim the gamer as a listener and add a download to its overall tally. You you might think, well, how how big a deal can that be? Uh, obviously, those people are not listening. Uh, they don't even know in many most cases that they downloaded the podcasts. Uh, it just it goes out into the uh, as Curry explained to me, it goes into the ether. It doesn't the the bit bucket doesn't even get saved under your uh, under your phone. Uh, one game referenced in this paper this the study came from a company called Deep Sea S E E. Uh, Bloomberg's uh, writing about it. Uh, one uh, company, uh, a popular mobile app from Cybo, uh, is called Subway Surfers. If you played it, downloaded three billion times since it came out 10 years ago. Over a period of two weeks in August, Bloomberg found multiple publishers using the game to rack up podcast downloads, uh, including, <laughs> I'm so sad to say, iHeart uh, Media, which... Uh, is uh, is is my uh, employer for the the radio show? Uh, iHeartMedia apparently was one of the number one users of uh, this, um, uh, and they shelled out more than ten million dollars, gained six million unique listeners a month, and they've been doing it since twenty eighteen. I always, you know, it's funny because we don't lie about our numbers. Uh, in fact, if anything, we're conservative about our numbers. Uh, and I always was puzzled when I see numbers f- from some of these big podcast companies. Like, really? You get 40 million downloads a month? Really? Is- well, now we know. Um, they don't. They don't. This is, a, and this, is, this is just one more example of the, of the click fraud that you were talking about, Corey. Um, yeah, I mean, apps, because they're so opaque, are a natural environment for this stuff. Yeah, you know, you do have to get through the app store heuristics and analytics. But if you can smuggle something through, the platforms by design don't let users closely monitor how the apps themselves are working. Like, you know, you it's Apple famously sued a company that made a VM that you could run iOS apps in that would allow you to do like really deep forensics on it. Um, you know, because they, they, they don't want you to think of this as software that you can like stick your own controls on. I saw you had in our rundown for today, something a little later on about the OG app, which as I understand it is, is a very similar kind of thing to, to, um, in terms of allowing users to gain more control in that it kind of acts as an overlay to your social media and then loads the feed that the social media company wants to send you, but throws away the ads and, you know, this is uh, Apple chucked it out of the app store. And and this is the point, right? It's to be able to exercise control so that when your interests diverge from the app store's interest, their interest comes first. And that produces this space in which all this mischief can take place. Because as soon as you design computers to treat their owners as adversaries, right? Adversaries, the manufacturer, then you make design decisions that, you know, necessarily increase their opacity. There's a lot. One of the reasons OG app exists is because there's a lot of dissatisfaction with what Meta has decided to do with Instagram, which is essentially uh, take it from a very lovely site where you could share photos with your friends and family and turn it into TikTok because that's the flavor of the month. The OG app eliminated ads. That was probably part of the problem from Meta's point of view, but also eliminated everything, all the algorithmic recommendations turn it frankly i loved it it turned my instagram back into my instagram like it used to be uh it immediately caused problems one of the first things 
Instagram uh, did uh, after I installed the OG app. I recommend it on MacBreak Weekly on Tuesday. It's gone today, by the way. One of the reasons I recommend I uh, uh, recommended it and liked it was uh, because it gave me my traditional Instagram. But as soon as I went back to Instagram, Instagram said, well, there's been a security event in your Instagram app. Please, uh, you have to re-authenticate. We got to make sure you are you. Okay, fine. But that happened every time I used the OG app. And then, it, of course, they somehow, some somebody got Apple to pull it from the app store. So it's gone. Uh, I don't know if it's, I think it's still on Android. Yeah, um, I mean, Apple is a good... Um, proxy for defending your interests when they're co-terminal with Apple's interests. Yeah. Uh, and they do have enormous resources and very skilled personnel who do that. But when your interests diverge from theirs, uh, and this is not unique to Apple, this is true of all the big firms. Facebook has an incredible security team that defends you from all kinds of threat actors. The one threat actor that they won't defend you from is Facebook. Right. And Apple is the same. So if you're a Chinese iOS user, and Apple has decided that access to Chinese consumers and Chinese manufacturing is more important than the integrity of Chinese users, you have no recourse when they remove all the working VPNs from the App Store and add a backdoor to their cloud servers uh, for the Chinese state to use, because by design, you can't modify and, and intervene. One of the things that I think we need to understand is that the outer periphery of how badly a firm can treat you has historically, and I think is still determined by what you can do if you're dissatisfied. Yeah, you can just leave. And there's someone in the chat saying, if you don't like Apple, you should just leave. Well, leaving Apple causes a switching cost, right? There's the technological cost of adjusting to something new. There's throwing away the media that is specific to your Apple device. There's um, uh, other intangible problems like uh, losing the ability to do rich uh, IM sessions with your fellow Apple users. You remember um, Tim Cook recently said, you know, if you want to share videos and pictures with your mom, uh, you should just buy her an iPhone. So the corollary of that is if you uh, switch away from iOS, then you, you can then you can say goodbye to doing that kind of messaging with your mom. So all of those switching costs have to be weighed against the benefit that you get from going somewhere else. And the firms understand this very intimately. Uh, again, in the Texas AG uh, case against Facebook, one of the uh, documents that was released are very frank memos between product design teams who are saying, we are going to design, for example, Facebook photos such that um, it is very good to use, not because we think that is something people will value, but because we think it will lure people into adding their family photos to Facebook. And once they do, they will endure the high switching cost of leaving behind their cherished family photos if they quit Facebook and go to Google+, Plus, which was the rival they were worried about at the time. And, and so firms very deliberately add very high switching costs to their products. And one of the things that these interoperable technologies do, like OG app and like um, VMs and, and all these other things that people build that are part of the long history of how technology companies, including Apple and Facebook, have confronted their own competitive challenges, is they allow users to have an intermediate state between leaving the firm altogether, leaving the service altogether, and enduring those high switching costs, and enduring whatever ration of crap the firm wants to shovel down their neck, right? Ad blockers are a great example. Pop-up blockers are a really good example. You know, pop-ups were once everywhere. The browsers added them by default, right? They were doing adversarial interoperability with the publishers whose content was being loaded in the browser. 
Publishers stop displaying pop-ups because advertisers stopped asking for them because users block them. That is one of the mechanisms by which we make technology better is by giving users control over their technological destiny so that firms' own behavior is limited because when they act badly, the users just take a corrective. You called, uh, I remember, ad blockers the largest consumer boycott in history. That's uh, Doc Searles. Yeah, that's Doc me quoting that. Doc. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Give yeah. him credit. Host of our uh, Floss Weekly show. Uh, we're. I want to take a break. We're going to talk about Google doing what it can to make ad blockers no longer work at all. Uh, Alex, before I take the break, anything you want to add to the last few minutes of conversation? Thanks for the opening. Um, I would say that uh, if we're thinking about everybody uh, just on the podcast app, uh, I thought the podcast scam is really interesting. Isn't that wild? Oh, makes news me mad. Bad news. Makes me so yeah. mad because... Uh, yeah. It hurts us, you know? It really hurts us badly. People Absolutely. just assume we're doing the same thing or Yeah. Yeah, the bad news is the bad news is obviously like when you try to build a podcast in an authentic real way like you and I are doing, uh, you know, you got to build a brick by brick. It's tough to build them. And so yeah, it does screw us. Uh the good news if you want to look at a silver lining is that podcast ads work. Yes. They're very valuable yes. in this business rules. Yes. So that's the positive note I'll leave us on. I I, I agree with you. Uh, you are you ad Isn't supported? That a good your, yeah, thank I'm, you. Yeah, to totally ad supported. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know what your experience has been, but lately it's been uh, uh, tougher and tougher because uh, companies, mostly it's agencies, not individual companies, but they want ad mm -hmm. tech, uh, and they'll and they'll raise the specter of well, I can get all this information from Spotify or iHeart, uh, or they'll say to us. Well, look, iHeart's CPMs, their cost for a thousand listeners, so much lower. Yeah, because eight million of those are fake. <laughs> right. We can't, yeah. it becomes hard to compete with that kind of fraud or, and or co-opting of the, of the market. And, uh, you know, I think honestly, independent podcasting like you and I do mm -hmm. is really going to be facing an uphill battle over the next few years. Yeah. As, but on the other hand, yeah, I think that we renew more easily. Because people see the stuff works and, you know, they know it's not fraud and uh, they're more inclined to spend again. So yeah, that's good. So, I hope so. It, yeah. ultimately, if you're running a business, what you want to do, you want to deliver for customers, create loyalty and produce a good product. Yeah. And I think that you can you can do that in, in an upstanding way in this industry. And it's worth a heck of a lot to advertisers, which is why you see people wanting to mimic it. Yeah. So they should stop. But the the headline for me is, you know. It's good. It's great news about podcast ads. Yeah, I want to get I, I the word think, out to advertisers because if mm -hmm. you know they they get they get oh it's cheap to buy iHeart, but then what they don't get is return because they're fake numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, th unfortunately, the the sometimes the reaction is well I guess podcasting doesn't work. Let's put our ad dollars yeah, but, back in NFL football, right. right? But clearly, there's enough interest in podcasting that I hope people so. are going to these great lengths in order to fulfill it. So. Look, I think that there's, I still believe that podcasting is, the, you know, more than radio, more than television, more than print. Um, you know, I, I think it's the, the most intimate form of, of media. You're there with a person, you know, in my case for an hour a week, in your case for many hours a week. And you're there with them on their People are getting tired of me. I could tell you right now. No, 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 no. But you're there with them on your. I don't. I don't think so. I, I, every time I'm, I'm with you, man, I, I hear. You know what I, I was thinking like about it, so. to be kind of fun is. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking about this with uh, Micah. I haven't told my wife yet, but uh, be kind of interesting to just make it more like a radio station where you just have hosts come on for two or three hours and you just, you're always mm -hmm. on. 
like 24-7. Always I dig on. that. Mm. Wouldn't that be interesting? Kind of a, like a live, a, continuous live stream. That was my first. I started out, um, my first real media gig was working uh, a sports show at uh, Nassau Community College Radio. Um, before I was in college, actually, I was in high school and I wrote to these guys. And uh, it was a blast. It's amazing. So yeah. I, I recommend it. Yeah. It's just a thought. We have, that's one of the reasons we've got our fabulous club twit. Uh, I want to give it a little bit of a plug because it makes a big difference to our bottom line. In fact, right now it's about 25% of our uh, total revenue. And that helps a lot as ads start to get harder and harder to sell. If I think if there is a long-term future for us, it's through something like club twit. Now here's what you get seven bucks a month, which I think is a pretty affordable dollar uh, figure. You get all ad free versions of our shows, all the shows ad free. You also get access to the club twit discord, which I, a lot of people are saying that's really the benefit we like. Uh, not everybody who joins a club ends up in the discord, but a lot of us use it and love it. Uh, it's a place to discuss not only uh, the shows, but you know, everything geeks like books and comics and, ham radio and hardware and Linux and music. Uh, that Discord is a lot of fun. Here's our TikTok corner. I guess they're talking about TikTok in there. And, of course, here's the Twit discussion going on right now. And we have animated GIFs, which makes it very much more fun. Also, it's a great place to put links in to uh, other shows. This interview I did with you, Corey, uh, on uh, Triangulation was not ad-supported. It was club-supported. That's the only way we could uh, do it. Because it's a, a ad hoc show that you know we bring in people when we want to talk to them, and so no advertiser is going to buy a show where they don't know when it's on. But the club makes it possible. That's why we also do hands on Mac in the club with Micah and uh, hands on Windows with Paul Thorat and our Untitled Linux shows in there. Uh, the club has really given us a chance to do a lot more uh, interesting stuff. We launched our new space show in there this week in space, which has since gone uh, public. Uh, also the Twit Plus feed, that's where those other shows show up. Seven bucks a month if you're interested. It really helps us. There's a yearly uh, membership too. If you don't want to be nickeled and dimed every month, uh, you can even get uh, corporate memberships if you want to uh, have everybody in your company listen. That would be good. You can also buy individual shows for $2.99 a month. All at twit.tv slash club twit. And we thank you uh, for your support. We do have great advertisers. Thank goodness. Uh, because, you know, it's expensive to do uh, what we do, including Policy Genius. Policy Genius is, well, genius. We pay hundreds of dollars a year to uh, for insurance, for fire insurance for our house, or, you know, you have to for your car, right? Some of us even buy insurance for our phones, the fumble-fingered among us. But how many of you are taking steps to protect your family? You know, think about your costs to your family, mortgage payments, student costs, uh, student loans and other loans that don't disappear if something happens to you, a life insurance policy. It was the when we had kids, the first thing I did is I want to make sure my family was taken care of if something bad happened to me. It could provide your loved ones with a financial cushion they can use to cover those ongoing costs. And it gives you peace of mind to know that they're going to be protected. Uh, having life insurance through your job, yeah, that's nice. It never was enough to really solve this problem. In fact, most people, it turns out, need about 10 times more coverage than their jobs offer to provide for their families. Inflation is driving up prices for everything these days. Life insurance rates actually down from this time last year. And since life insurance typically gets more expensive as you age, 
the best time to buy that life insurance is today. And the best way to do it, Policy Genius. It's not an insurer. They're an insurance marketplace. So you can get quotes from all the best companies, AIG, Prudential, all of the best, best companies in one place, and get the lowest price on your life insurance, which means you could save as much as 50% or even more on life insurance just by comparing quotes on, on Policy Genius. Options start at $17 a month for half a million dollars of coverage. Of course, it's going to depend on you, your age, and so forth. That's why. But it's not getting cheaper, so do it right now. Click the link on uh, our show notes or head to policygenius.com slash twit. And you can get personalized quotes in minutes to find the right policy for your needs. Now, I should tell you, the uh, people you're talking to at Policy Genius are licensed agents. They have to be in order to advise you about insurance. You're buying insurance from these big companies, but Policy Genius is not working for those companies. They work for you. And they're on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options, help you make decisions with confidence. They do not add extra fees. They do not, you'll be glad to know, sell your info to third parties. Check the reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and elsewhere. Thousands of five-star reviews. People really love this service. They have options that offer coverage in as little as a week. Some avoid unnecessary medical exams. 30 million people have shopped for insurance at Policy Genius. They've placed more than $150 billion in coverage. And again, people love it. While you're there, of course, they do offer quotes for home, auto, pet, renters, and more. So you should check that out as well. But I, I thought it was appropriate to talk about life insurance today because I think so many of us, especially you younger folks, you don't think about that, but you've got kids you got a spouse. If you've got a family, you need that life insurance. Policygenius.com slash twit. Get those life insurance quotes free. There's no cost. And see how much you can save. Policygenius. Policygenius.com slash twit. Uh, oh, gosh, there's so many stories in so little time. Let me see. Uh, before we go to talk about that story I wanted to ask you about, uh, the Amazon hardware event, Alex, before we go to the A17 chip price increase, before all of that, let's run a quick promo for some of the things that happened this week on Twitter. I think you might recognize some of the people. It's only the people in the C-suites and the stockholders that are really getting rich on this. And the people are waking up and we got to get there get before the guillotines go up because... I mean, I have one over here. No, no. Oh, no. Previously on Twit. Triangulation. Cory Doctorow just co-authored a book now out called Choke Point Capitalism. Corey and his co-author Rebecca Giblin uh, are joining us. So Amazon's got this flywheel that it loves to boast about. It says we've got this lower cost structure. It leads to lower prices and everybody is super happy. That's, That's not really they what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. everything that Amazon has ever done in its business has been designed first and foremost to lock in its customers, but also so it could squeeze other competitors out of the market. Tech News Week. Stadia, Google's cloud gaming uh, service, is done. Google's basically announced that it's going to be done. It's killing it. it time and time again, they, they prove that this is just part of their brand identity, and that's a bad thing to be part of your brand identity. Mac Break Weekly. Yeah, that's. I will say I'll be testing uh, this Apple Watch Ultra in the hurricane. Uh, that's actually headed my way. Oh, where are you right now? <laughs> oh, my word. I am near uh, Tampa, Florida. The Kind of the bottom line review, Stephen, on the uh, Ultra? Worth it? I do like the bigger screen, and I was always a titanium watch guy. So if you want titanium, well, <laughs> there it goes. Oh, bye-bye, Stephen. Bye. Bye, Stephen. It's been a Thanks pleasure to talking to you. Good luck in the hurricane. Twit. 
It keeps going and going and going. Show this. Show the wide shot. The hurricane. Because what happens now is Brick comes in and removes you from the presence. Yes. Wait, he's still there. <laughs> Wait a minute, he's back. I'll last as, uh, as long as my APC runs on my Mac Studio. I hear the beeping. I hear the beeping. <laughs> the good news is uh, the hurricane dodged Tampa, and uh, Steven is just fine. Just in case. And now our friends in Fort Myers, maybe that's another story. But uh, we our thoughts going out to all of you, of course. I hope you did survive and do well in the hurricane. If you didn't, I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, did you watch any of the or read any of the coverage of Amazon's uh, big event uh, this week, Alex? And uh, what were your thoughts? I was most intrigued by that sleep monitor that they have. Um, I don't know about you, but I think you said earlier in the show, maybe for the eight sleep ad that we could all use a better night's sleep. Yeah, the halo, they call it, right? Because it, yeah, it, it doesn't have a camera as far as I could tell. Yeah. Now, I th- it doesn't have a camera. And I'm always interested in trying to use like, uh, you know, any way I can to sleep better and, and learn a little bit more about how I sleep. And the things that are on your wrist, I don't sleep almost anything on my wrist. So, um you know, I'm not, I I guess I'm out on those, but something like this is is interesting. However, I just don't trust Amazon with this type of thing. So, um, you know, maybe someone can take a uh, do go the reverse route and copy this from big tech, and so I could use actually it. actually Google but, um, uh, with their Nest Hub will also uh, do that because that one has a camera and yeah, also listens for right. your snores yeah. and stuff like that. That's out for me. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so I don't know. I, I like these. I like the idea. I like to use this idea of we can use technology to improve our wellness and improve our health. Um, it's interesting. But, uh, this I is part of let Amazon do it. Amazon's Halo uh, series because they have this Halo band too, which is a fitness tracker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then now this is the Halo View, which is uh, um, which doesn't one, see. It has more of a watch, right? <laughs> Doesn't see, and then the Halo oh. Rise, which doesn't have a camera. Right, that doesn't see. Yeah, it doesn't see. Yeah, and it has a cool. It wakes you up with some light in the morning. So it's the, I mean, that's I'm not that, going to buy it, yeah. but a lot of people are going to buy this yeah. thing for sure. Amazon also announced uh, that they are going to let your Amazon Echo act as an Eero beacon. Amazon owns the mesh networking company Eero, and uh, in a very interesting synergy, when you buy uh, one of the new fifth generation Amazon Echoes, it can be used to extend your Wi-Fi. Uh, using Eero, um, I have to say all of these things look like Amazon thinly veiled attempts at Amazon to get more sensors into your home. Corey, are they also? <laughs> you had any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is exactly what this is. As is the the um, the robot Astro and yeah. I I mean I. I, I think that for me, this hit, drives home the the problem or the poverty of just don't do business with them because I own some Eros. In fact, I own many Eros. Uh, I bought them before they were an Amazon company. Uh, so if the answer to if you don't like Amazon, don't do business with them, uh, if that's the answer, then what do I do when Amazon buys the company? Right? What do you do when Google buys Fitbit? Um, what do you do when Facebook buys your beloved daily visit Jiffy? Uh, you, you are, you're stuck, right? And so, um, you know, it's not like I can add my own firmware. Uh, it's not like I can untether it. In fact, the firmware updates for the Eros that I own have become increasingly Amazon linked. Every time I get one, I get a bunch of notices about how this is uh, becoming less and less functional without Alexa. They build that as it becoming more and more functional with Alexa, but obviously these are the, the uh, opposite sides of the same coin. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it tells you the problem with acquisition driven growth in a market where we choose winners based on what people buy, because companies who have access to the capital markets can just buy the companies that are successful. You know, if the, everything in your grocery store is made by Procter and Gamble or, or Unilever, and if there is a local, you know, artisanal oatmeal cookie place that takes off, one of them will buy it. And when they do their press release, they will say, we here at Procter & Gamble understand that our customers value choice. And that's why we bought the company you chose to buy things from instead of us. Yeah, I think that this is pointing to an interesting uh, battle, uh, slightly different lens, but interesting battle between Amazon and Apple. And I think that Apple has largely given up in the um, in the battle for for ambient computing. Remember, it sort of rolled back HomePod. Siri still is garbage. Uh, meanwhile, Amazon's going to be everywhere in your home. And that's a whole new computing le- layer. Uh, and I think there, you know, as this stuff gets, you know, more and more embedded in our lives, the fact that we're walking around the sensors, the fact that, you know, you have echoes in your house. They're also mesh networks. You can speak to it. It will enhance your Wi-Fi. By the way, I would like, like to hear what Corey thinks about this, but now they're going to acquire a Roomba or try to at least. Right, so now that they're vacuum, you're their vacuum. Although uh, the, the latest news yeah, is that the FTC, right? Is Elizabeth Warren it. doesn't like that, and yeah, neither does the yeah, FTC. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but anyway, I think that I think that it's interesting, and I wonder what will happen. You know, as Apple sees, um, you know, that uh, Amazon run away with this screenless computing uh, in your home, and whether it then pushes Apple to try to, you know, basically do what it's done, you know, in, in every other level, which is say we're going to do this, but we're going to do it privacy you know, privacy focused and whether that will work. Um, anyway, it's an interesting battle uh, that, that I'm looking at with this. I think Apple and Amazon just inch closer and closer together the farther, um, you know, we, we get towards, you know, them pushing beyond the markets that they own. And I think that's going to be a really interesting battle. But anyway, why don't we tee up Corey on the, uh, on the Roomba question? <laughs> well, that's I what I, that's, has to say that, about that, the iRobot acquisition. I mean, I think it's the same thing. Amazon would like to know, mm-hmm about the inside of your home and its geometry. Uh, and they'd like to know that so that they can leverage it for parochial advantage, like to, to make you use that or, or, or to make it, to make it so that the only company that you can use that geometry with is Amazon. Um, it is to your benefit if you own a mobile robot. And this is the kind of thing that you're interested in to get accurate maps of your home from that robot, but it's not to your benefit to have that robot only allow you to take the data that was generated by the robot that you bought that you charged with your electricity going around your home that you own or rent but that data not being yours to use to your maximal advantage that data's uses being constrained to uses that are um, good for the shareholders of the company that made the robot in fact not even the shareholders of the company that made the robot the shareholders of the company that bought the company that made the robot i don't understand why we as the owners of that robot should feel like like it's our duty to make sure that those shareholders are happy. I'm on team Corey here. Let's uh, have a kumbaya <laughs> moment here towards the end. But, uh, you know, I, I, I bought the Roomba on Prime Day, so go figure. Amazon yeah. got me to buy it. Well, I think this uh, is really the lesson of a, all of this yeah. is that we are willing captors, uh, captives. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, I, yeah mean, I think that's a great lesson. Leo. Yeah. You point out just, in, your, uh, in your book, Corey, that yeah. only 1% of people who have Amazon Prime ever shop for better deals outside of Amazon. It's just yeah. once you pay for Prime, you're there for life. You know. Go ahead, Alex. I'm just going to just do a quick ode to the Roomba that uh, 
Does it work nice for you? Device. You like it? I love it. I'm a yeah. Roombaholic. I run a couple <laughs> times a week and my floors are real clean. So. Uh, uh, can I ask you as a practical matter, how does that work? Because I have never owned a Roomba that didn't immediately get hopelessly lost in, you know, like a, a, a crack in the pavement or like a cable or something. They just. Yeah, yeah. You probably like have a eat. very square build house with no, you know, it's just yeah. it's no, a certain, wires. <laughs> no wires, no wires. No, it it does eat my wires. I have to be a little careful about it, but um, my house is yeah pretty boxy. I mean, it's an apartment, so it's pretty small. We had a Roomba that would get optimal for the Roomba. We had a a little etagere, you know, kind of side table thing that had just enough clearance on the floor for the Roomba to think it could get under it, but not quite enough clearance for it to continue. (laughs) So it gets stuck. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Every night, Roomba. The Roomba is the only thing in my house that's more stubborn than me. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and it would go bang, bang, <laughs> yeah. bang, trying to get in there. It and does, I, there's a, three Leo, in the morning. I'm up every three, every moments. day, every night, three in the morning. I'm up picking yeah. up the little Roomba, bringing it back to its home. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, there's these moments where the Roomba just goes for it and keeps going for it. And then eventually it wins. And it's a, it's a quite a celebratory moment for me. I'm like, you there's, did it. You did it. <laughs> there's a great machine learning uh, uh, kind of um, uh, teachable moment, uh, cautionary tale, where an engineer uh, used an ML alg- algorithm to get his Roomba to minimize forward uh, crashes with its forward bumper so that it wouldn't bang into the walls. Uh, and Amazing. it just started going in reverse. <laughs> it's given up on entirely on it. It's a smart Roomba. By the way, I'm just nominating Roombaholics for the show title. I'm I like it. Roombaholics. Yeah. Makes yeah. it happen. Surround your Roomba with a little bit of salt and see what uh, see what happens. Yeah. Talking about browser <laughs> uh, extensions and uh, browser ad blockers, Google had announced the evil technology in Manifest V3 which allowed for uh, something called the Web Content API, uh, was going to be eliminated from Chrome and hence Chromium, its open source uh, uh, parent, uh, and hence probably from many open source projects based on Chromium, um, which means that ad blockers like my favorite Gore Hills uh, uBlock Origin would no longer work. They require this uh, manifest v2 and access to the web content via the api google has some good reasons to to dump it um it can slow your it can really hit performance if all the if every single extension starts asking for the content uh it can also be a privacy problem but i think people install the honey um uh, chrome extension <laughs> really want it and know that honey's watching every move they make a uh, lot of criticism. Google has said we're going to delay this till 2024. This has been, by the way, kind of a, a standard for Google. They'll announce some big change to something or other. Everybody will complain. Uh, and then Google says, oh, well, never mind. We're going to do topics. We're not going to do uh, we're not going to do that other thing. So I hope that this is delayed forever. But it's just one more reason you should not use Chrome or Chromium based browsers. Vivaldi says our ad blocker will continue to work. We'll continue to support V2. Uh, I think Brave has its own ad blocker uh, in there, but I use Firefox for that uh, reason. I think it's good to have a competitor to Google. Uh, And uh, finally, um, as you know, McDonald's has uh, left Russia, uh, which uh, has given rise, I think, to uh, a number of stores that look just like McDonald's called Tasty and That's It. And now Russia's former Lego stores... 
Lego has also left the country, have been rebranded as World of Cubes. But uh, as Rob Bishisa <laughs> points out in Boing Boing, uh, the Lego uh, patent has expired, so it, making sure. a Lego clone uh, is not hard to do. Unclear whether they they'll... should stick with World of Cubes. World I mean, of Cubes, pretty good. Better, yeah. Yeah. Although uh, Rob says he should have called it Eastern Block. I mean, really, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob Biscitza is a national treasure. Is it Biscitza? I'll say it right from now on. I Biscitza. say Biscitza. I don't know what he says. Oh, I okay. Biscitza. Yeah. Well, that's the correct Italian pronunciation. Yeah. Biscitza. Biscitza. Uh, he suggests also it'd be nice if there were some locally themed replacement product lines such as. Sets for Beria's execution in the Lubyanka building's basement and so forth. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Uh, we can laugh as, uh, as we watch the world burn. That's, uh, that's pretty much uh, the story there. I hope we don't have a nuclear uh, war, uh, World War III, uh, or any of that. And if, with any luck, we don't, you can listen to the fantastic Big Technology podcast, uh, as created by the wonderful Alex Kantrowitz. Boy, you get some great people. Bar- uh, Prabhakar yeah, Raghavan is on the most recent yeah. one, Google's senior vice president of search. Uh, really good stuff. Yeah, I'm about to drop uh, an episode uh, with Francis Haugen, the uh, Facebook oh, whistleblower. Awesome. So awesome. that's coming. By the time this is live, that will be live. And then later uh, this week, I have Tom Allison, who uh, many people don't know, but he runs Facebook, the app. So um, wow. it'll, it'll be some some fun conversations coming up and <laughs> um, lots of AI stuff uh, on, on the way as well. So if people like that conversation we had about sentience and stuff like that, trying to bring all views in, it's going to be fun. Yeah, really Kevin fun Kelly in August. So this is the second time yeah. you've dropped his name. Right. And Kevin sure. Kelly's episode was just his life advice. We didn't really talk about oh. technology at all. It was just his life advice. That's his new, uh, isn't that it's his amazing. Book or something like that. Yeah. He has yeah. a book coming out about yeah. it. And, yeah. uh, he has these lists of a hundred things, you know, for my hundred, 70th birthday or something like that. Right. 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 And, uh, I just loved it so much. I was like, Kevin, when you come on, I'm going to ask you about these things. Good. So that was a blast. Oh, I'll listen to that one for sure. I love Kevin. Mm-hmm. Uh, also of course the big technology newsletter at big technology.substack.com. There's Dolly images right there up top. Oh, are you using uh, this week. Dolly for your uh, illustrations? I am. I was using, I'm, I'm not a big business, so I, I don't have money uh, for illustrators, but um, I was using Unsplash before, the free uh, right. uh, stock photos. And I think this is my first week trying to Dolly like image it. out. And like it's dope. It. It's dope, man. It's dope, Leo. And don't forget, always <laughs> day one, how the Tech Titans plan to stay on top. Alex is excellent. Speaking of books, Cory Doctorow's Choke Point Capitalism is now available. I'm ashamed to say I read it on Kindle Unlimited, but I understand that you pulled the plug on that. <laughs> Best thing to do, buy it from uh, from chokepointcapitalism.com or Corey's uh, really fantastic pluralistic blog, which I love. Uh, or, or anywhere else books are sold, just to be clear. Okay. You don't mind. Yes. You don't mind if it's I somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. Anywhere finer books are sold. And don't forget pluralistic.net. Corey has yet to use Dolly for his illustrations. Oh, <laughs> he, no. The, the, I, I use them in bits and pieces. So, oh, do you? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, uh, and that, that illustration for today's uh, medium column with the... Um, with the TED Talk stage, I couldn't find a good image ah. of a TED Talk stage, so I said empty TED Talk stage, uh, and I got that. 
and then everything else came from it. And and uh, my thread about Palantir in the NHS, uh, haunted NHS hospital was my prompt to Dolly. And then everything else. That was really on. creepy. That that one is really really <laughs> yeah. creepy. Oof. Um, and the Ted, did you ask for a donkey in the TED talk, or did it just? No, no, no. I sh- I shooped that. So the TED stage is uh is is Dolly. The genes are from a public domain source. The <laughs> torso is Steve Jobs's torso. I thought it might fight. be. Yeah, or, yeah. That looks like the Miyazaki turtleneck. Pump. Yeah, and the donkey uh, and the clown shoes are both Creative Commons images, uh, and they're all. Corey, this is what you mean by a centaur, I think, right? Humans <laughs> yeah, working with AI. Centaur, yeah. The, chicken, centaur. the chickenization of TED Talk. Do you uh, and, and shooped? Is that the uh, official uh, terminology? For that's that? the verb for yeah. For, like you can tell by the pixels. That's when you. That's when you go in and mod uh, an image with Photoshop. You have shooped it, but in my case, I gimped it <laughs> because you are the open source guy always a pleasure to have you on yeah. Corey. thank you I thank you leo it. yeah it was a ple- and i like that you ended this with your own controversial take that world war three is bad it's gonna be a bad <laughs> thing for uh, children and other and other living creatures I think. Yeah. yeah unhealthy for children <laughs> and other living yeah, yeah you remember concern. that poster yeah. you old hippie you yeah i had one in my bedroom growing up uh, my i figured you did a little flower drawing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey thank you both of you really a pleasure i knew that with the two of you i didn't need anybody else what a great show alex kantrowitz cory doctorow thanks for being here thanks to all of you i think you're probably glad you were here for this as well we do twit every sunday afternoon 2 p.m pacific 5 p.m eastern 2100 utc you can tune in and watch it live at live.twit.tv if you're watching live our irc is open both uh, alex and uh, Corey were in the irc actively participating that's fantastic irc.twit.tv they're even putting in plugs for where you can buy the book Corey. they they love you Aww. uh and also uh if you're a member of club twit you can do it in the discord after the fact Shows are available at the website, ad-supported, twit.tv. Also on YouTube, there's a dedicated YouTube channel for uh, all of our shows. And, of course, the best way to get it, in my opinion, be to find a a podcast player and subscribe. And that way you get it automatically every Sunday night, just in time for your Monday morning commute uh, from the bedroom to the living room. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. Oh, it's a sad old world. It's a sad old world these days, I'll tell you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Bye, guys. We'll see you next time. Another twit is in the can. Bye-bye. Amazing.